So yeah, what, what, what are we gonna eat tonight? Are we gonna uh, are we gonna go to Giovanni's tonight or Giovanni's? Please, there's no way you could have ever gotten a reservation to Giovanni's. Oh, I know people. Oh, you know people. Well, that's just great. Well, I say we head to Crayola. That place is uh, supposedly, according to the Zagat's Guide, one of the top five restaurants in the Upper East Side. I heard they have a lovely gazpacho with raw chicken chunks in it. I would definitely like to check that out. V, what do you think? I think that we should take our 9 o'clock reservation at Dorcia. Got a table at Dorcia? Sounds great. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by Movie Monster Boy Aaron and me, the cowardly co-host Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Get your Huey Lewis and the News cassette tapes ready, because this week we are talking American Psycho with, once again, the great VP Morris. Thank you, V, for coming back on yet again. It's always a delight to have you on. It is kind of funny that we had you on for Silence of the Lambs, and now we're having you on for American Psycho, because there is a little bit of overlap between Hannibal Lecter and, we'll say, the protagonist of American Psycho. The most murder is when we have you on. <laughs> That's fine with me, because I love me some murder. So, And also, thanks for having me back. I'm super excited to talk about this, because it's one of my favorite movies of all time, so I can't wait to nerd out over it. It's a good one. But yeah, you have a new book coming out, You or have published a book and you have a couple other things that are uh, digital only releases. Do you want to go ahead and talk about that up top so our listeners can pre-order the new book that's coming out, maybe check out your old work and uh, support you in, in that way? Yeah, so my newest thriller is coming out April 7th. It's called Dead Ringer. It's about a young woman who's lived a life of basically being a small-time criminal and when she accidentally causes the death of her doppelganger, she decides to take over that young girl's life, but but she soon realizes that being like the good girl and living a simple, easy suburban life is not as easy as it looks. And also the family that she's infiltrated is hiding a very deadly secret. So she has to keep her identity secret while figuring out this weird new world she has thrown herself into. And uh, that can be found through my publisher, Black Rose Writing, as well as on Amazon and eventually Barnes & Noble. So you can pre-order through my publisher and Amazon, and then it will be on Barnes & Noble's for regular order. Um, It will be a Kindle as well. You can get my other thriller novel that came out a year and a half ago, Shadowcast, there as well. And I have a few digital short stories that are all on my Amazon page. So once you look for VP Morris on Amazon, you can see all of that stuff. And if I remember correctly, the short stories were like hauntings that took place in like areas that you wouldn't necessarily always have a haunting, like a haunted freeway exit, mm-hmm. a haunted office building, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And also you can follow VP at T Right Repeat on Twitter and your link tree has links to all that stuff as well. Um, Your link tree is linked on top of your Twitter. Again, that is T-T-E-A, right, repeat on Twitter. Aaron, how, how have you been doing, bro? Uh, Pretty good. I'm about ready to literally take a claw hammer to my head and pull my brain out and just smash it against the wall because my extra homework for this episode was I listened to the audiobook that this movie is adapted from. And yeah, now I just hate all of humanity. So it'll be very fun talking about this movie because uh, I like the movie a lot. I have struggled once to get through 
through the book and never finished it, and now I powered through it, and like I said, it was interesting, so um, very much looking forward to having this conversation. I did the same thing, by the way, so I understand <laughs> the pain that you've lived nice. through. Having Patrick Bateman's voice inside your head as an yeah. audiobook is so much more upsetting than the movie. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, nice. And I am four cups of coffee in. I slept like crap last night, but because I didn't sleep well, uh, we got up early and caught the Hawaii sunrise this morning, which was really nice. And then I got rained on a bunch, making my way back home to get on for this recording. That's going to sound like a complaint. No, I've been very excited. That to sounds talk about pretty this movie. delightful. Yeah, <laughs> it was a shit morning that turned into a great morning. Like so, but I am a little out of it. So, and like I said, I'm like four cups of coffee deep. So we'll see how this goes. That's fine, bro. Just do like three bumps of coke in the bathroom and a halcyon, yeah. and you know, take a, a relaxer for your muscles, and then put on a facial creme blend made out of weird herbs and spices, and you'll be right ready to go. So weird. Quick aside in those scenes where like he was taking bumps of coke before like doing crazy shit. It reminded me of the scene from Blood Rage where he's just like, yeah, I'll hit that joint before he stabs that fucking guy. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> So, uh, without that all out of the way, we will move on to a recommendation section in which we uh, discuss other horror-related media, be it TV, other movies, comics, video games, etc., that we've consumed recently and we recommend it to each other, and hopefully your audience hears uh, recommendations that you want to check out for yourselves. Guests always goes first, so V, uh, we will throw it over to you. Have you gotten any- into anything spooky lately? Yes, yeah, so I have quite a bit. I've got five totals so of two books, two movies, and one television show. The first is Murder Run by John Hunt. He's actually a fellow Black Rose writing author, but I'm not being like paid or told to, you know, promote his work. <laughs> I genuinely think it's a good fit for horror fans because he's a horror writer. The book is about a, a young man who gets out of prison and basically the first thing he does is accidentally slash kind of murder someone. So he goes on the run, but it turns out the young woman he killed is connected to a very powerful motorcycle gang in the area. So her family is going after him and then law enforcement's going after him and he's just killing people along the way and there's a bunch of crazy stuff in the woods that happens. So if you're the type of person who really likes kind of action-packed and more like gruesome horror, it's a quick, fun crazy read. It kind of sounds like grindhouse mm-hmm. a little bit. It does yeah, have a, yeah. a bit of that feel, and he has a bunch of other books out that I haven't had a chance to read, but they all have the same I guess their description or have the same feel to them from what I've read of the reviews. So if you're looking for a new horror author, I recommend checking him out. And then for a second book, The Family Plot by Megan Collins. So if you're not really into that and you want more of a suspense thriller, yeah, it's better for, for the kind of slow burn type. And it's about a family that is obsessed with true crime and serial killers that lives in a big mansion with almost no one around them. Years later, they find one of the boys went missing as a younger kid and now they found his body and they're starting to ask questions about you know is the family guilty of killing him who really killed him is their obsession healthy and normal or is it a sign of a deeper problem and there's a lot of you know family dynamics and you know who could have possibly killed this young man many years ago so it's a good sort of modern gothic whodunit it's kind of funny you bring that up because on a really early episode of our show I read a, a book also called the Family Plot also probably came out in the last decade by an author that I've been following for a while named Cherry Priest. She usually writes steampunk Mm -hmm. novels and even a little bit like steampunk horror novels, but she did a a ghost story called The Family Plot that was involving like a 
salvage crew in the southeast that went to like a decrepit mansion to basically like tear down some of the more valuable pieces that are in the mansion and it turns out to be haunted and it involves a family plot so it's kind of interesting that because i've heard of megan collins book as well and i haven't read that one it's funny how those two both mm-hmm. overlap with each other they're both horror related and all that so check out both family plots the one by megan collins and the one by sherry priest because i'm sure they're both really good yeah i haven't heard of the the other one i'll have to put that on my list because that sounds like a really cool plot i like you know yeah. sort of that going into decrepit places type stories if you're interested sherry priest series of steampunk books i think it's like a, the clockwork century series it's a like alternate history civil war steampunk series it also has zombies in it it is maybe a geared a little more towards young adults but honestly like it's fun reads for any age and it can get pretty violent as well and they're really just kind of like no nonsense action-packed books that are like you can read in days so for for the movies i'm recommending the conspiracy which came out in 2012 it is a found footage horror which i had not heard of it and i haven't really seen a lot of people talk about this because a lot of other found footage you know like paranormal activity and uh, as above so below gets kind of the attention but i found this to be really upsetting maybe it's because we live in an age where like everyone is kind of a conspiracy theorist because of the internet that it doesn't matter like what your personal beliefs are it seems like someone has found some weird thing online and believes it so it it kind of got creepier with age which maybe if i watched it in 2012 i would have been like ah they're just a bunch of crazies but now i'm like oh that could just be anyone believing that great so i I recommend that if you like found footage it's very unsettling that's one that i would definitely like to do because a like you said the conspiracy theory angles of it are very interesting it's very much about a bohemian grove style retreat where all these rich you know industrialists and politicians and people go for you know a a leadership retreat kind of thing and then of course they're like doing fucking black magic sex ritual stuff to like weird totem god kind of thing like and it's the superb owl yeah the superb (laughs) owl exactly it's just this guy like infiltrating this organization and kind of sneaking onto the premises and recording all of it you know and i definitely agree with you like i think it's a very underrated found footage movie especially for a subgenre that is very hit or miss that's one that yeah i don't know why that movie hasn't really had that much traction other than just you don't hear about it and you don't really see it front and center on streaming it's one that a buddy of mine that i worked with told me about around the time it came out and i was like okay sure what is this red box garbage put it on because it was on netflix and i was kind of blown away by it at the time and it's one that i want to go back and revisit because i haven't thought about it really a whole lot but we just brought it up as like another option for another guest who wants to do some found footage stuff so Derek we might have to like put a sticker on that one and maybe try to revisit that sometime soon well because I was about to say V we've been running into this a lot lately um, and we bring it up every time when we record but it's so funny with horror movies like when they talk about some kind of illness breakout and everyone like needs to quarantine and it's just like well they get together and actually quarantine and we all laugh at that because it's like that's not what's gonna fucking happen (laughs) what's gonna happen is we're all gonna argue about it and then everyone's gonna die from the zombie (laughs) apocalypse 
But it is interesting to see like the other side of that with this movie of being like, oh, those conspiracy theories, that'll never gain traction. It's like fucking January 6th <laughs> happened because of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Panama Papers, all this other like bullshit from the last several years, especially. So yeah, it's it's an interesting movie like to go back to with the last several, several years in context. Christopher McBride that directed that one. The Conspiracy and a movie called Flashback are really the only things that he's directed. But clearly he's still working. He just worked on the new Scream movie. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to revisit that one. So we'll put a sticker on that one for the near future. Awesome. So the other movie I recommend is The Night House, which came out in 2021. So it was kind of in this really weird spot where theaters were open for the first time in yeah. a long time. But then they shut down again but during Delta. So I kind of felt bad because I think a lot of those movies that came out between June and August of last year. Yeah, they definitely got stuck. They got, I mean, some attention, but they didn't get, you know, the traction that movies coming out this year are going to get or the movies that were just strictly streaming got. This was one of, like, probably my favorite horror movie of last year. I didn't have a chance to see a lot because of what was going on with the world. But it's about a, a woman whose husband, like, all of a sudden kills himself. And she's dealing with the fallout of where did this come from? And then she just finds all these secrets that he was hiding. Like, he built their house, but the mere image of it across the way. And... So she's trying to figure out what is going on with this like reversey house that yeah. exists out there and, and what's going on. So it was just very eerie and unsettling and Rebecca Hall as the lead was amazing in it. There's a few jump scares that will make your heart stop, but overall... It was an excellent movie. This is another one that I just have not heard anything about. And I'm, I'm just kind of Googling it right I've now. I've mentioned while it to you before. Uh, it's the same guy who directed The Ritual. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Ritual was awesome. So might have to check this one out down the line. Yeah, Nighthouse was good. Definitely check that one out for sure. And I think it might be on HBO Max now or something like that. I know it for sure it's out. So it should be pretty easy to find. And um, so the last thing I have to recommend is the television show All of Us Are Dead, which is, you know, kind of a big deal right now. I know it seems like the horror world is kind of blowing up with it, and it's kind of the new squid game of this year. Um, so it's about a bunch of teenagers in school in Korea, and there is a zombie outbreak in their school that spreads to the surrounding town, and it's about them attempting to survive and get out alive and it's very well written there is a, a lot of you know high stakes and drama and a lot of heart too so they're very great at, at all of the different emotions that come with this type of thing i think in a way that's even better than the walking dead so i highly recommend that south korea is really like in a golden age of horror right now yeah. aren't they <laughs> like because i i didn't know that's what the show was about i had just seen like bits and pieces of people posting about it from time to time and like right now it feels like it is kind of gaining that traction the same way squid games did so it'd be interesting to see if it like it really explodes in that same way but it's funny that it just came off the heels of squid games because squid games like is still in the front of their brains when it comes to pop culture but i am glad that people are realizing that like south korea isn't fucking around with some of the darker material they tackle i always for some reason think kids in other countries are like nicer than american teenagers i think i just like have a bad opinion of american teenagers because you know i was one and you know they all look so like nice in their their school uniforms because we don't have school uniforms here unless you're private so i'm just like oh they're gonna be so much nicer than american kids and they're just so awful to each other i'm like oh no teenagers <laughs> 
teachers are awful everywhere, regardless of their uniform or that they get better grades on average than American students. Like, oh, they are awful. (laughs) So I grew up born and raised Catholic. In New Orleans, the school systems are kind of fucked. You either test into a really good public school or you go to private Catholic school like from pre-K to 12th grade senior year. The private Catholic schools, it's all uniforms. If you go to an all-guys school, you have sister schools that are all girls schools and you meet up with each other for like extracurricular events after school and all that. We're all in uniforms. It didn't matter. We were all awful to each other. We were all pieces of shit. Uniform or not, we were all horrible. But uh, yeah, no, those are those are some good recommendations. Do you have yeah. any more? Uh, no, I am good. Awesome. Aaron, what have you got? So I've really only got one thing to mention because I've been kind of busy. It is a Netflix show called Archive 81. I had heard about this kind of on and off from a few different people. And at the end of the day, I was crashing at my parents' house for work. My mother happened to mention like, hey, there's a good horror show that you should check out called Archive 81. And at first I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And I was thinking it was going to be a British show. Because my mom watches every fucking British TV show thing that like comes across streaming, right? So I just had a weird kind of conception of what it was, and I figured it was probably some kind of murder mystery thing. Turns out, no, there's lots of tropes and layers to it. It centers around a young guy named Mamadou Athi, and he is a film archivist. So he like restores damaged film prints and video cassettes and things like that. He's approached by the CEO of this really cryptic, shady corporation to take a job restoring a bunch of old, busted, burned VHS tapes from a apartment fire. And it's off in upstate New York at this facility, which is this really kind of 70s modern, concrete, weird, all-in-one dorm, apartment, lab, building thing that's in the middle of the country, isolated, right? And, you know, he's like, okay, $100,000, just come do this job. Goes out there, starts watching these tapes little by little. You're now getting this parallel narrative of a woman who is filming a documentary for her grad school thesis, and it's about the people who are in this apartment building in New York that's this, you know, notorious weird apartment building where there was a fire previously and this new building was built on top of that and there's weird stuff going on and the mystery just kind of gets deeper and deeper with each episode and there's eight episodes that's it you're in and out pretty quick the whole thing definitely kind of ends on a cliffhanger and there's already been talk of doing another season ultimately it involves let's just say some light not time travel but like time distortion black magic and rituals and maybe some like demon maybe some alien stuff maybe some is it actually there crazy so twin peaks basically <laughs> it doesn't have any of the quirk oh no no i know i meant but more of like that esoteric nature it's definitely that esoteric kind of stuff yeah. yes it involves a weird mold that is growing in places and influencing uh, things potentially it okay. involves 
people being kind of sacrificed and groomed and like all the people in this building being kind of tied into this larger conspiracy. It's very interesting where it goes. Two of the episodes were directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who we've spoken about on the show. They did Resolution, Spring, The Endless, Synchronic, and they are the showrunners for the Moon Knight show that Marvel's about to put out. So two of the episodes were directed by them, which was cool. But yeah, the cast is great. Very creepy. Very good dread. Lots of very intriguing what is going to happen next kind of stuff. Like I mentioned, it's on Netflix. It's eight episodes. It's an easy, very addictive show to watch. So definitely check that one out. Did you mention that it's based off of a podcast, a horror No, that was actually the last thing I was about to bring up was it is, and I'm curious to check out this podcast. Again, I've been busy shoving Brett Easton Ellis pencils into my ear for the last two weeks, but... I'm definitely going to listen to that podcast next just to kind of see, like, what is the podcast like versus the show. But yeah, it's based on a podcast, so that's pretty cool. Well, I saw that one of the other directors is a woman named Rebecca Thomas, who actually directed the whole one season of Limetown. And Limetown is also a dark thriller drama podcast, and she directed all the episodes on that. And I think she's done some other stuff. I think she directed, like, an episode of Stranger Things as well so it's pulling in some interesting names from a a creative standpoint i keep forgetting those guys are doing moon knight in the last two or three episodes they've come up in some way there's just always a weird tie going back to them yeah the podcast itself is also just called archive 81 they're kind of also breaking their show up into seasons so it's 10 episode chunks And then they've got some little interstitial small bite seasons and I guess kind of spoilers. The show kind of does the same thing where one of the episodes is like a completely set aside different time period, different characters, completely side to the plot, but ties into everything to give you context episode. It looks like the podcast does the same exact kind of thing where they'll have a full season and then they have, you know, this one two part special that's kind of a tie-in thing so yeah i'm definitely gonna check that out next and uh i guess maybe if i can cram through all that i'll report back on that maybe on one of the next episodes so yeah that's all i have right now derek what about you cool so i've got three recommendations i got a comic and two movies actually myself which is unlike hey. me usually for my usual recommendations but the first i'll start off with the comic it is a sequel comic it is under the hill house banner of comics that dc is putting out and joe hill Stephen King's son has a horror imprint called Hill House under the DC banner. Let me guess. Is it refrigerator full of heads? Yeah, it's yeah. refrigerator full of heads. So up top, my only small criticism of it so far is that you have to go back and read basket full of heads yeah. to know what the fuck is going on. I was kind of hoping refrigerator full of heads would just be more like, kind of like the silver coin where like it's more loosely based on this axe and it's going through the ages. But I am glad it's going a different route from the silver coin since we already have the silver coin coming out in comics. This is more of a franchise, it feels like, instead of a slasher itself it's the object of power 
But yeah, you need to read Basketful of Heads, which was written by Joe Hill, and it's seven issues long before you read Refrigerator Full of Heads. And Basketful of Heads is great. Uh, it's a great horror book. And kind of slight spoilers for that, if you don't know what it is, this woman and her husband, or her fiance rather, criminals escape on this island during a hurricane. They're all trapped on the island together. Her husband basically like is dot, 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 like maybe abducted by these criminals or goes missing. And then they come to the house that she's at to steal more shit and she gets this antique axe that this guy is holding in his house to defend herself chops off the head of the person who assaults her uh turns out the head is still alive (laughs) anybody who's chopped by this axe like if their head is chopped off they're still alive and it turns out this axe winds up being like one of the norse mythology like imagine the the axe that kratos uses in god of war in the most recent god of war game like it's that axe you know forged by odin or whatever I, i i'm sorry I don't know. I'm not up to snuff on my mythology, my Norse mythology, but it's a magic axe. We get it. It's a magic <laughs> axe. Yeah. And it basically ends with her. And that's kind of where Basketful ends. So Refrigerator Full of Heads picks back up. And the thing I really like about Refrigerator Full of Heads is it kind of takes the Texas Chainsaw approach and that the first one was pretty dark, pretty violent. It didn't have too much humor to it. Refrigerator Full of Heads is campy as fuck so far, yes. <laughs> like by comparison. I'm enjoying it a good bit more, yeah. Yeah, and I love Joe Hill, I do, but Refrigerator is actually being written by a different person. Um, it's being written by uh, an author named uh, Rio Yours, R-I-O, and then their last name is Y-O-U-E. R-S. And the artwork is done by Tom Fowler, I believe. Yeah, Tom Fowler. And the artwork's even more like cartoony than like Basketful was. So Basketful felt like, you know, the first in the franchise. It's it's the dark one. It's whatever. And Refrigerator is definitely more like embracing the camp of it. So these two people arrive in the same town a year later after all this shit happens. And they're acting like a couple who is vacationing. You find out very, very quickly that they're part of some law enforcement or something of that nature. And they are looking for the axe. On top of that, there's a motorcycle gang and their leader is looking for the axe as well. And she has all the other artifacts of Norse power. All she's missing is the axe. And if she can find the axe, she can bring about Ragnarok or get the power of the gods or whatever. The first issue is like one giant homage to Jaws because at the same time, this island beach town is being stalked by a giant shark. And the way they handle like the Jaws subplot, because they they wrap it up in the very first issue. It's hilarious because the two agents wind up renting a boat and going into the river and going to look for the axe and they get attacked by like the Jaws shark. And I think you can see where this is going. They wind up chopping the shark's head off and because they use the axe to do it, that shark's head is still alive. (laughs) Later on, they literally like feed the shark's head when they're attacked by people. So yeah, it's very campy. Like it is a little bit grindhousey with this motorcycle gang that's searching for these objects of power. You have all these other government agencies on board the woman who's the main character from Basketful who got away returns in Refrigerator and she's like assumed a new identity and is like a school teacher now. The motorcycle gang abducts her because they think she knows exactly where the axe is. It's good shit. It's a lot of fun. It's a much more thrill ride than Basketful was but you do need to read Basketful before Refrigerator if you want to know what the fuck's going on. Sounds like you're reading this too. Yes, I'm not completely
completely caught up on it, but I I started it already. Yeah, it's pretty wild shit. There's already been some pretty like fun kills. Like if we want to talk about horror, especially with slasher movies, they almost get creative with how they do kills. I'd, I'd say that this one's a bit more creative with the kills than than Basketful is. So that's my comic recommendation. So speaking of camp and crazy shit, I was in the mood for like sort of underrated 80s horror. So I was looking at lists and like when Autumn would take naps throughout the last week or two, I would throw on a movie. First one I'm going to recommend, and this is one Aaron I know we're going to do on our podcast eventually. I know it's one you've talked about quite a lot. I watched the 1988 remake of The Blob. Yeah. Directed by Chuck Russell. Hell yeah. This movie fucking rocks, by the way. Yeah. And is way scarier than I thought it would be, actually, in, in some weird ways. It subverted a ton of tropes from the original Blob. There's so many moments of, like, you think you know who the main characters are, and then they're fucking unceremoniously killed off. I don't want to give away the twist. We talked about our My Bloody Valentine episode, how like the remake and a lot of remakes in general miss the point of the original. This feels like what a remake should do, where like it embraces enough of the original source material and just makes changes that update it for the time. Like in this at this point, it was pretty modern of the way they updated like the origin of the blob. Yeah. And they do enough of their own shit to stand alone. And at this point, 1988, the effects and everything are much, much more different than when the original Blob came out. Yeah, because I think it was 1958 because it was the 30th anniversary when yeah. they did this remake. Please tell me that you got a bug to watch this after reading Heather's book and like going through a Tony Gardner section. So no, I didn't. Okay. It wasn't because of Heather's book. Because this is definitely one of the like best practical effects movies from the yes. 80s by far. Dude, the kills and the way the blob is actually handled in this movie, even by today's standards, practical effects wise, it fucking rules. Like when yeah. you're seeing people's bodies dissolving and they're trying to scream as the blob has devoured them, there were some pretty effective jump scares from those kind of kills. Yeah, there's a a lot of good moments in the movie where you're just kind of like, ooh, ah, ooh, oh, and it just like gets even worse all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> okay, tentacles grab somebody and you're like, oh God, that looks, oh God, that's awful. And then tentacles r- pull somebody backwards through a tiny opening and you're like, oh God. Yeah, let's just <laughs> say there's, there's a pretty like gnarly like, oh fuck kill. There's several, yeah. Involving a kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever uh been kind of weirded out about putting your hand down a sink to like get something out that's gunked up in there, mm-hmm, yeah, this this movie definitely kind of gets on that. Paul McCrane, once again, just like Robocop, having just a fucking terrible nightmare death. Small cameos, I know, from like Bill Mosley and Art LaFleur, Del Close, Frank Collison. Like, there's a lot of like weird character actor kind of guys in it. But Shawnee Smith is a fucking badass in that movie. She is. And Kevin Dillon has maybe like one of the best top tier 80s mullets I've ever seen. (laughs) So, yeah, it's great. This movie tackled a lot, too, but like it handled everything pretty pretty competently because there were weird allusions to like again government conspiracy theory there were weird allusions to religious fanatics yeah uh, which was unexpected but at the same time there was also like a lot of 1950s energy to this movie because there was 
the greaser guy and the quarterback. They're at a diner and even the whole scene of the blob coming down this, the main street of this one town, which that was hilarious as, as to why everyone just ran all the way into the building and like locked themselves in the courthouse at the end of the street. It's like you guys can just move to the left or move yeah. to the right and it doesn't look <laughs> like the blob's coming that way. But yeah, like so imagine like the same kind of cheer, I guess is the best way to describe it of 1958's sci-fi horror blob but then like when the blob actually grabbing people like you're seeing like them literally be dissolved and screaming and all that a fucking kid dies in this movie too by the way which i wasn't expecting like a 10 year old little boy yeah (laughs) chuck russell's pretty great and it does kind of blow my mind a little bit why his career fell off the way that it did because his first movie was fucking nightmare on elm street 3 which is for a lot of hardcore fans that's their favorite then he did this then he did the mask with jim carrey which was like a huge hit from our childhood he did a racer with schwarzenegger but then like i get it he kind of fell off like he did the scorpion king movie (laughs) and now he's kind of just doing red box movies with john travolta you know like i get it he definitely has not made anything good recently but like i don't know why there was such a fall off considering he made three pretty big hits right out the gate right yeah he's one of those people that i would like to see kind of get handed some smaller horror movies and like get back in that game again if he's down to do it you know i think he would certainly be fun to bring back if he's not just totally like nah i'm retired i'm over it you know yeah and the last thing too about the blob is that at the heart of it it is very much a like rebellion against authority kind of story and also like again adults not really listening to their own children or people who they've deemed other and outsider and then it turns out that they were right because like shawnee smith's character literally sees something happen in front of her eyes is like I'm not fucking crazy and this is this is really early in the movie so I'm not giving anything away the fact that they discover the homeless guy's body half his body is just gone basically like (laughs) totally dissolved and they're not like this is weird and that he came in with this mysterious goo on his hand that was burning his hand all right all right, movie, but like, yeah, there, there had to still be enough camp factor to like pull off some of those awesome kills. But yeah, The Blob 1988, this is one of the best remakes of a movie I think I've seen in a while. Top notch stuff. The second one popped up on a lot of lists as a very underrated crazy 80s horror movie. It is the second movie in this franchise, but it okay. doesn't really have much to do with the first movie in the franchise. And I actually still haven't watched the first movie. And literally the only thing that ties the two movies together is they technically happen at the same high school. Otherwise, they're completely different. You watched Prom Night 2. I watched Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. <laughs> yeah. Which- it's a fucking insano movie, but it was, I will admit, it was a good time. I watched this actually after I watched American Psycho. I made it a double feature kind of day to really fuck with my head. It follows the story of a girl named Mary Lou Maloney, who in 1957 is co up for high school prom. I love how the movie sets it up that like she's kind of a bad girl too, because it starts off with her going to the confessional at the church and being like, I've done all this sinful stuff, father. I've lusted over boys. I've partied hard. I've lied to my parents, blah, blah, blah. And the priest is just like, well, my daughter, those are some serious sins. You need to say your Hail Marys and ask God for forgiveness. And she's just like, and I don't give a damn about any of it. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's kind of like a Carrie setup initially where this tragedy happens, right? And then it like 
cuts forward to the 80s. Yeah, she goes to prom. Some shit happens involving like her boyfriend and another guy. She winds up, let's just say, getting murdered. Yeah, I know it was unintentional, but he murdered her. <laughs> and uh, turns out her ghost is trapped in like the basement where like all the like drama club stuff is stored. And her prom dress, for some reason, which wasn't burnt to crisp with the rest of her, is like still totally fine and just kept in the prom. Box. Yeah, they just kept all this dead girl stuff at the school yeah. just for reasons. <laughs> yeah, so uh, fast forward to the present. <laughs> Michael Ironside is now the principal of the school. <laughs> Ironside is now the principal of the school. And when I say present, it's like 1986, 1987. This girl is looking for her prom dress and she's maybe up for being the prom queen. She winds up going exploring in the props, opens up the box, letting out Mary Lou's spirit and decides that she wants to use Mary Lou's prom dress yeah then she's slowly getting possessed by mary lou and a lot of weird shit happens yeah there's some gnarly kills in this one too the locker scene in general the effect where the girl goes into the classroom and the actual blackboard starts like warping liquid yeah and she goes and touches it and literally like pulled into the blackboard which they filmed it where the blackboard is on a floor and it's water with black lining so it looks looks flat until she falls into it and you realize it's a pool it's water and she gets kind of pulled into it it's a really neat effect i don't think i've seen it really replicated a whole lot of other times so there's some pretty novel shit in here but yeah the ending of it is brian de palma's carry but just full cocaine madness it's yeah. pretty nuts it's not original it's riffing on a lot of shit yeah. it's riffing on carry definitely in the best ways yeah yeah it riffs a heavy on nightmare on elm street when the girl who is getting possessed starts hallucinating all these things her school basically becomes silent hill and like she gets stalked by mary lou's spirit that way and then like some of the kills are very nightmare on elm street-esque I read somewhere that it was riffing even a little bit on like David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which I guess mm, sort yeah, of maybe, uh, yeah. And that it's like small town with secrets. Yeah, sure. but it, it's way more of a riff, I think, on Nightmare on Elm Street and Carrie, and maybe a little bit possession kind of movies as well again like a lot of 80s horror it was weirdly exploitative and that like uh, granted even at the time of this movie all the actresses were adults but like they're technically supposed to be like 17 year old kids and there's a scene with a lot of nudity that one girl who gets killed in the locker like she is full frontal nude for that whole entire scene so yeah there's weird 80s kind of dangerous horror energy to it too it's not incompetent it is fucking batshit in many aspects but I know what you mean like like the whole yeah. subplot with the best friend finding out that she's pregnant and debating like how to deal with that. Well, and that was a very mean natured kill because she just found out she was pregnant and then like Mary Lou's spirit kills her and everyone just assumes she committed suicide because she couldn't handle the pressure. Yeah, that's one of the first things that happens in the movie. So there is definitely yeah. some like hard edge to it that you're not necessarily expecting. But that's part of the reason why it's so batshit because it bounces from like actually intense serious kind of moments to like a rocking horse in her bedroom has goggle eyes and a tongue and is just like at her like yeah, like a demon what the horse. hell is this right yeah. so yeah it does have wild whiplash kind of shit in it but it's bananas when she's like full-blown possessed she makes out with her own dad and he's like gosh 
much. And it's just like, that's kind of weird. Yeah, weird reaction. But uh, yeah, and like, honestly, it was not horrible. Like, it was actually a pretty fun watch. I like it more than the first one with Jamie Lee Curtis, yeah. which is honestly kind of just a really bland slasher. Yeah, like that's what I, I've been reading. The first one is, while it's sort of memorable, it's pretty much just cookie cutter slasher of the 80s. And it just so happens that Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. And that's yeah. kind of mostly why it's recognized. And a lot of lists were saying this is actually the crazy good one. And I can see what they mean by that. It is creepy in some instances. The kills are pretty like brutal. But honestly, there was really only one jump scare that kind of got me. And it was towards the end when Mary Lou's spirit has fully manifested and like half her face is charred and all that. Yeah. It's like one of those jump scares where you see her in the background and then like quick cut up to the camera, like hiss at you. The part where like she literally was pretty cool like when she's fully manifesting like but yeah it, it was a wild <laughs> I ride. might end up cutting some of this conversation out for the sake of spoilers but yeah like there's good effects shit in this for sure yeah maybe even more than prom night one check out hello mary lou prom night two you don't need to know a damn thing about the first movie but yeah that is all i've got cool well let's uh transition into talking about this movie so as the title would suggest and as we've hinted at we are going to be covering american psycho directed by mary heron from the year 2000 starring christian bale kind of in his breakout performance this is based on the 1991 book written by brett easton ellis which was a massively controversial book when it came out at the time but this movie is very interesting there's been certainly kind of a you know different take on this movie considering it was written by women directed by a woman a lot of the like insanity of that book has been kind of filtered in interesting ways where the movie has certainly kind of found a different type of response over the years and it's kind of become a cult thing so this movie is like a very interesting and perplexed thing so yeah that's what we're going to be chatting about here is the trailer just to kind of give you an idea if you have no idea what we're talking about new card what do you think Whoa. very nice patrick you're so sweet jean yes patrick do you like to accompany me to dinner sabrina why don't you dance a little christy get down on your knees We're not through yet. That's a wonderful suit. It looks so soft. I don't think I can control myself. If you stay, something bad will happen. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. Hey, Paul! What do you do? I'm into, uh, well, murders and executions mostly. I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh, <laughs> I just had <laughs> to kill a lot of people. 
So V, one of the first things you told us after coming on for Silence of the Lambs is that you absolutely wanted to come on if and when we did American Psycho. We, we have had American Psycho on our list for a while. I think Aaron and I both argue that this is still a capital H horror movie, even yeah. though like... It, a lot of dark humor, a lot of satire, yeah. but definitely yeah. like capital H horror for sure. Yeah. You said that you wanted to come on and you said you have thoughts. (laughs) You have a lot of thoughts. So we'll let you lead the discussion here. Why this movie? Why does it stand out to you so much? And what's your basically thesis on it? So the, the what I like about it is that it's very similar to how people talk about The Graduate in that if every time you watch it, your opinion of it changes and it kind of reflects how you're feeling at that point in your life. Yeah. It also, you know, your ability to trust Patrick's view of reality shifts through your watch, through like when you think back to it, just as I was watching it and taking notes, even though I've seen this movie like maybe five or six times now, I still like cannot nail down the truth and sometimes that frustrates me with other kind of lesser executed um, movies or books that are like did it really happen though and I kind of am like okay but this one I like the kind of intellectual challenge of trying to hammer down like you know there's basically a few interpretations like he's either completely insane and none of it happened all of it happened or some of it happened and we have to kind of walk that line between okay what did he hallucinate and what did he actually do? Yeah, so I actually was watching a couple analysis videos on it and just kind of reading some stuff after watching it. And kind of the heart of it is that Mary Heron herself, she is not at all interested in whether or not what's happening on screen is reality or not. She was more trying to capture the open-ended nature of the book. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, she wishes she made the ending even more open-ended. People are constantly always going to her like, was it all a dream? Was it all in his head? And She's like, I admittedly get frustrated by that because that's not the point of the movie or the story in this case. I think that's kind of the key nature to it because it sounds like he is a killer, but he's not the type of killer he thinks he Mm -hmm. is. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because that's not what's important to the story. Also, one of the brief things I saw in an interview with Mary and Brett Easton Ellis is that Brett Easton Ellis actually when he wrote the novel, he didn't think it should have been ever made into a movie. When he's like, when you make something into a movie, audiences beg for something to make sense. They beg for like, what is the truth behind what's being shown on the screen? And he's just like, that's not at all like what Patrick Bateman's story is about. But on the flip side of that, I think with Mary Heron directing it and her writing the screenplay with another woman, Guinevere Turner, I think it is way more of a satire now in the movie form of the yuppie culture of New York City, specifically investment banking and high stake CEOs. And it almost feels like a distillation of that study that was done where they found that Fortune 500 CEOs have the same personality type of serial killers of a Ted Bundy. Yeah, I mean, this is just kind of the original thesis on that idea. Yeah, it's also interesting, too. I mean, the movie has one or two mentions of it, but in the book, he is also completely obsessed with one Donald J. Trump and is constantly like, I want to be like Trump. I'm constantly paying attention to what he's doing. I want to like go to these parties. Is this where he also eats? Like he's just obsessed with the idea of that is my standard of success that I want to reach. And so I'm going to like emulate that. So it's interesting that to your point, Derek, 30 years ago, we all knew kind of what was up with him at the time, you know, to the point that this book is literally pointing out that level of just weird sociology 
sociopathy that you have to have to like get to that level of success, regardless of what type of industry you're in, but specifically, you know, the Wall Street game for sure. And V, one of the things that Aaron and I talked about kind of off mic about this movie, and I kind of want to run this by you and see what your thoughts are. This movie is kind of like hand in hand, and even in some ways in the same presentation and narrative style, the character saying these quotable things that sound like they're philosophical when sometimes they really aren't. We compared this to Fight Club because both the books were written by like angry Gen Xers, but they are also very misinterpreted. But then the movies also take both books into like wild directions. David Fincher maybe stylized Fight Club too much to the point where and made Brad Pitt such a like Tyler Durden such a cool character that like the people that it's actually making fun of now embrace that. Whereas Mary Heron successfully doesn't make Patrick Bateman or anything he does look cool at all. Doesn't make it like look stylish at all. Yeah, Patrick's a huge dork. He's a huge <laughs> dork. Huge fucking nerd because yeah. he's so obsessed with all this minutia and all this dumb shit you know he takes that as like this badge of status but every time that he talks to like anybody in the movie it especially cracks me up the scene where he's got christy the street prostitute and then he has the other call girl come in and he's like don't y'all want to know what i do and they're just like no <laughs> we don't give two shits you well know? and even when like people mistaken his identity they're always calling like yeah patrick bayman's a nerd yeah. fuck that guy Going back to like what I was going to run by UV to the point where like that morning routine scene and like him going through like the stuff he owns sometimes yeah. in the movie is very reminiscent of the apartment from Fight Club. It's just so much the white collar version of Fight Club in, but in the same kind of ways. Yeah, I would argue that Mary Heron is more successful in being like, no, I'm yes. making fun of this. I'm satiring it. I think David Fincher Fight Club's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. As much shit as, you know, bro culture has taken over. But he makes it look too cool. He makes it yeah. look too slick and too cool and you want to be like these guys bro and mary heron's very good at tempering that down to where he looks constantly like a jackass and not somebody that you want to be like so the satire in the movie is way more effective than it comes across in fight club and not just him the entire yuppie culture all of it yeah 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 Yeah, Yeah. i I find something interesting about both of those books is that both chuck palanek and uh brett easton ellis are gay men or bi men because um, Brett has kind of changed his identity a few times throughout his year, so I don't want to, I don't know what he currently identifies as, but he has a male partner, so both of them are, you know, not straight white men, so they kind of, interestingly enough, have one kind of a bit removal from the audience they're writing about, that in the case of American Psycho, Brett would be, you know, he was able to hang out with these guys when he was writing the book and kind of get a view into their world, but he was always kind of an outsider, not just because he wasn't an investment maker, but he also didn't view women the same way they were viewing women as like something to obtain to make yourself look cooler. And I find that interesting because those two books are are frequently, or movies, are frequently compared to each other because they talk about masculinity and like the different and and how like, and some negative stuff that can happen in an extremely like capitalistic or consumer-based culture. And yeah, Fight Club is a bit more gritty with like, you know, the rebels that are kind of the outcasts of society fighting it where Patrick is struggling with at the top. But yeah, like if you're like a young guy and you told your friends or some other person you might have met that, 
oh, my idol is Patrick Bateman, people would be like, um, what is wrong with you? Exactly. But if you say Tyler Durden, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, like he's ripped and he's handsome and he's so yeah. smooth. It's like they kind of missed, they should have made Tyler a bit more dorky in a way, even though it's kind of hard to do that given the source material, but just something that makes him seem way less cool than he he is. Even if you agree with some of the sentiments of Tyler Durden, he's also a fucking monster mm-hmm. when you yeah. really think about like the things he does. It's fascinating to me how, because this what came two, three years after Fight Club did, and so it's still pretty much in the same time frame area of cinema, but it's just so interesting to me that like people could separate American Psycho and be like, yeah, that's a satire. These people are awful. Nobody wants to be like this, but then they can't with Fight Club, and David Fincher is fantastic. I think Aaron and I have made it clear that we are David Fincher fans but I think he kind of failed a little bit to really like catch the satire of Fight Club whereas Mary Heron and maybe I don't know you guys can speak to this more than I can I haven't read book American Psycho is he going for satire is he trying to like harpoon yuppie culture he is but boy is it still a rough read he is very much going for satire and one thing that I do kind of enjoy about the book that the movie does the gimmick of oh, this is where we're going to eat, and it's the most exclusive place, and here's all the weird bullshit fancy food they have, and Jim so-and-so shows up, and he's wearing this piece of clothing by this designer, and this piece of clothing by this designer, and, you know, this artist was playing, and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's all these very hyper-detail-specific things that we know from all the serial killers that have been caught over the years and studied relentlessly and in interviewed and all this other bullshit those weird hyper details are the things that those kinds of people tend to fixate on and obsess over in weird ways and so the narration in the book is constantly constantly that and it just gets more intense and more ridiculous as the book goes on to the point where toward the end he's describing stuff at the restaurant just like he has the entire book because it's all first person narration for the most part but then it becomes absolute utter bullshit nonsense like oh yeah it was an endive salad with white chocolate chips and like a mayonnaise (laughs) whatever on it and a gazpacho with raw chicken bits and you're like you have to think about it for a minute you're like, wait, no, no, there's no way. There's no way that that's fucking real. This is his mania coming out. The clothing becomes more ridiculous. You can tell there's moments where the character is having these breakdowns and the reality is tending to slip. There's an interesting moment in the book, too, where there seems to be this full-on disassociation with the narration because the entire thing is first person except for the moment where, like, he shoots the person on the street, which we do see in the movie, and he kind of goes on the run because the cop are chasing him in the book it's even more insane like he's just blam 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 shooting people fucking everywhere and running away from the cops there's a moment where like he's in a vehicle the vehicle crashes and it switches to third person narration and there's this weird moment of disassociation there and then it switches back to first person again once that incident is over and it never really addresses it from that point on yeah the movie does a good job of capturing the absurdity of that entire scene yeah because like he's never reloading his gun has like magic aim it can blow cars blew up, up a like, car yeah. yeah but there is definitely the repetitive nature the obsession with minutia the obsession with petty stuff that is not at all important and just that level of disconnect with people and reality like the satire is very very front and center
dinner, it's just tough to read because then you get into the sections where he's talking about murdering people and it's the most gut-churning mm-hmm. grisly stuff. That's tough to read. And honestly, we've talked about this on the show before, but rich people drive me fucking crazy. I'm going to be real. The amount of petty bullshit drives me up the wall. And this book is nothing but showing how insanely disconnected and petty everything is that this guy lives in and exists in. Yeah, so you have grisly serial killer description, violence towards women, all that stuff, and then you have... But then it'll spend three pages talking about exactly what type of manicure he gets and exactly how they, like, buff his nails and all this bullshit, right? Another thing about the book, in terms of satire, and as I was re-watching the movie, Heather actually commented on this as well, he's an investment banker, in air quotes. And all these other guys that he's around are... Quote-unquote investment bankers. Wall Street investment bankers, whatever, right? But at no point... None of them are actually doing fucking work. (laughs) At no fucking point in the movie... Or in the novel, do any of them actually do work, ever? It's all about what restaurant are we going to? I'm lifting weights. Oh, I'm going to get a massage. I'm going to go buy shit. I'm going to go return videotapes. I'm going to go on vacation. They are never doing any I'm going to do this crossword actual... puzzle. I'm going to listen to music yeah. at my desk. Yeah. They're never doing any actual work. And it just goes to like that constant weird rich people thing of, what do you do? What is your job? Tell me how that works. Oh, you literally just move money from one place to another place and somehow you make money off that what you know like it's just not quantifiable in the same way but the book and the movie very much play on that satire of just what the fuck do rich people actually do right but it's just kind of one of those vicious cycle things of once you're at a certain level like you can just perpetuate that coasting because then you're already there you know you're locked in the satire is certainly like front and center in the novel v what else did you take as far as satire goes well i mean there's a certain point where it's laced with so much profanity. I mean, he uses every slur against any given ethnic or, you know, sexual orientation, women, whatever, like the N word, the F word, as far as like gay men goes, like, and like, it gets to a certain point where like the first times you you hear it, because you're, I'm not used to hearing people say those words. um, You're kind of like shocked, but then like, by the time you're halfway through the book, it kind of just like rolls over you. And I, I kind of got the epi- or the feeling that that's how, I guess, Patrick and his world is like, they're kind of desensitized to yeah. the feelings of other people because they don't have to like be confronted by it ever. So it's not a big deal to call a woman a whore or something. The conversation that they have right before Lewis comes on to Patrick in that club where they're all sitting in a circle about how there's no such thing as a pretty woman with a good personality, like it's verbatim taken from the book and that's clearly a satire of guys who talk that way locker talk yeah of of that sort of talk and i actually think that some of the murders which even though like you mentioned they're very gruesome to the point that i feel like they almost feel silly even though they're obviously horrendous things he's doing to his victims it's literal overkill like he's continuing to like harm the corpse after the person has stopped living and yeah i mean not that it's funny but it's kind of a way that you're just like listing more and more ways and like and then i stabbed her with this and it's like okay it's getting to the point where I feel like he's trying to convince us as the audience, like, I'm a badass. I kill women. And it's kind of like, oh, all right. And he's especially cheeky with stuff because, oh, yeah, just for funsies, I fucking put the dead girl's heart in a box and mailed it to her parents. Ha ha ha. Aren't I like clever? Yeah, there's stuff like that where he does just go beyond the like initial thrill of the kill. And one thing that's talked about with like actual real life serial killers a lot is that difference between a process killer and a process. Product killer in the sense that 
process killer is all about the actual act of stalking, killing, death. That instant gratification of, I killed somebody, where a product killer is more about, I'm not into the actual murder. That is just a, like, thing I have to do because what I want is the end result, which is this dead body. And what's interesting is Patrick is very much both of those things, which is at least exceedingly rare in the real-world serial killer thing to the point that, like, it's not a thing, right? Or at least he thinks he is. Well, sure, yeah. And that's like a whole other part of the argument, right? My argument is that he is a serial killer, but he is not the serial killer he thinks he is. He thinks he's way more cool and way more badass. And that's to V's point is it feels very much like a fucking 13 year old boy just being like, oh, gross, what can be like the most fucking nasty thing ever? That's what I'm going to do, right? Yeah. What's the most fucked up thing I can do to this body? And then at the same time, he thinks he's Hannibal Lecter, but he's not. Oh, well, there's, there's a lot more really the only moment in the movie where you see him kind of doing anything near cannibalism or consuming or like using his teeth is when one of the prostitutes is kicking him trying to get him away and he bites her leg and the scene where he's maybe going down on Guinevere Turner and then like you hear her screaming in the blood and then he comes up with blood all over his face in the book there's a lot more specific him eating people's dead bodies and cooking people and stuff like that there's a lot more of that and it's a lot of i tried to cook this body and i really just fucked it up and burned it in the oven and like eh whoops yeah and he like when he's doing that confession over the phone he's saying and i i tried to eat it once (laughs) yeah like i couldn't do it that's not necessarily the hannibal comparison i was going for i was going more for the comparison of the suave the urbane wears suits food and clothes pouring only i can appreciate this type of music and if you don't you deserve to die kind of idea of Hannibal Lecter it sounds like the movie does a good job of capturing at least the essence of all of this but in in a more digestible way Mm -hmm. whereas the book is just kind of like it's way more cranked to 11 yes it is a very we're gonna give you the cliff notes of his madness so that you can at least tolerate having to sit through it because I think if the movie were any more explicit than it already is there's no way this movie would have seen the light of day this movie already struggled to get down from an NC-17 rating to an R, and you know, nowadays you pretty much always see the uncut version on streaming, and Lionsgate just put out on 4K recently, I got the 4K, and it's the uncut version. So that's what you still see mostly, but there's no way if this movie had been any more explicit that they really ever would have gotten away with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. they would have had to cut all the explicit stuff out to get anywhere, period. So like, you know, I don't think people would respond to it the way that they have, and I don't think the satire would come across as well if it were more explicit and to that point we'll talk about production what ifs and like some of the other directions this movie could have taken in a little bit two questions i had in my head after watching this uh one of them i think we've all answered is this a capital h horror movie and i think we can all agree that this is a capital h horror movie even if it doesn't have a lot of the same horror trappings as other horror movies but the other question i I had and v i I wanted to ask you this specifically because i feel like you are much more qualified to answer this than aaron or i some Something I saw in some of like the analysis I digested about this movie is that some people are arguing that this is actually a feminist movie, despite all the shit that happens to the female characters. 
the fact that it's critiqued in a way by female screenwriters and a female director and how it distills what the book was portraying, it still comes off as a very feminist text, like a feminist absurd satire of hyper-masculinity, and in this case, under the 1980s yuppie culture of uh, New York bankers. What are your thoughts on that? Would you agree with that assessment, or is your assessment of the movie kind of similar to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it isn't anti-woman, because I know that, um, so Gloria Steinem is Christian Bale's uh, stepmother, so she actually begged him to not make this movie because she saw it as very anti-woman, but I don't see it that way because everything that Patrick does, it doesn't bring him happiness or fame or anything. If it maybe was the story of how like a serial killer got famous, like the way Bundy is to this day, then I would maybe say that it isn't because it kind of was like, oh, he got exactly everything he wanted. He got the fame and the closure from, hey, look at me, I am a killer. But, you know, he is continually trying to find meaning in his life. He takes hyper-masculinity to like the nth degree of being like very dominating towards women in murder, and it doesn't give him the thing that he wants in life. And I find that's a good thing. Like he would maybe, even though he's not like mentally well, he might actually be happier if he didn't continue to try to both care about his status financially and care about his status as like how the world views me in my relationship to women. Yeah. I mean, there's some subtext I, I could actually even see Patrick being closeted gay because he doesn't seem to actually enjoy the sex he's having like he's having sex but looking in a mirror at himself yeah. he's like look at how traditionally masculine am I I don't he doesn't seem to be like lost in the joys of sex with women he's doing it to prove to himself he's a certain way and he doesn't kill Lewis which you would think that like a serial killer who's kind of anti-woman anti-gay would just like straight up murder this gay man who came on to him and he kind of just like cowardly walks away. Yeah, like he backs down in like a very weird way. Mm -hmm. It also makes you think that all the times that he was filming himself, not only to like, I guess, go back and watch the sadomasochist nature of maybe some of the stuff he does with the sex workers, but you also wonder, is he watching himself? The film makes a point in a more jaded way, kind of glorifying the male body, like mm -hmm. his body specifically, and he's even glorifying his own body in a way where another, other movies would typically glorify the female body, which I thought was really interesting. But you can tell he is in love with his physical self, with his own body. Like you said, like to the point where when he's having a threesome, he's not even paying attention to the two women. He's looking in the mirror. He's flexing. I laughed out loud when he looked <laughs> in the mirror and fucking flexed. This piece of shit is so in love with himself and his own masculine form that like he doesn't give a shit that he's currently in a threesome with these two other women. But yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't actually considered to much of the closeted subtext there but i think it very much is there now that you bring it up well kind of to all those points as well the way he has sex is kind of telling as well you know whether it's a closeted thing or whether it's just a narcissism thing yeah he very much has very vanilla boring and this feels kind of like a chore sex with the women that he is in a relationship with in air quotes but then when he's having sex with prostitutes call girls or whatever just like women that he's picked up it's always the most over the top 
performative, scripted kind of sex. Like, it's very much like the porn that he's constantly watching. Like, in the movie, he's got porn on, like, in the background. In the book, he's constantly, like, renting hardcore porn. Unto itself seems like a performance mm-hmm. he's putting on for his own self. Like That's what like, I'm saying. Like Fully it's, cover it's, that mask on him. It's kind of that weird, I'm gonna overperform because I need to, like, prove something. Yeah. But I mean, he even does it to his own serial killer nature with when he gets pissed, he puts on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then what happens like shortly after that, he chases the woman with the chainsaw. Like, yes, correct. Yeah. And, and it's very much one of those, you know, I'm going to aspire to be a certain way. So like I watch porn constantly. I need to like fuck like these guys fuck, you know, and at the end of the day, like porn's really weird and it's not just straightforward sex. It's a lot of scripted stuff and like, you know, we have to get a certain angle or framing. So move this way. Stop what you're doing. Move lights around. We have to do like, it's a lot of like weird shit to do porn, right? So he's trying to emulate that with his camera set up and telling them what to do and okay, get here and kind of moving them around like mannequins in these weird ways. Yeah, it's just this very over-performative thing, whereas when you see him having sex with Evelyn, it's just the most vanilla missionary and it's just kind of, okay, alright, well, we're done with that, let's move on, I gotta get out of here. That's actually Courtney. That's right, yeah, yeah, Lewis's yeah. fiance, which I think he's only interested in Courtney because she's another man's woman and a man he doesn't like, so exactly, yeah, I don't yeah. think he would want Courtney by herself, even for just sex because he's not getting any, like, masculine ego boost out of that yeah and as far as the closeted thing as well all the stuff with lewis there's more of that that kind of keeps circling back around in the book as well there's more encounters with lewis as time goes on you know kind of in the same way that you know you see a lot of times in real life where guys are very like outwardly homophobic in a very like performative way like i have to prove to be like the most masculine i'm like the least gay dude in this whole group there's very much that that whole like weird performative thing it's like a weird competition of you know why are you doing this right so there is some question there on top of the fact that all of these guys are the very textbook definition of metrosexual like they are obsessed with their appearance and they're getting their nails done going to massage places constantly and they use all these products and all these really specific clothing and accessories and stuff yet they're gonna be the first person to like like, use slurs and be aggressive to gay people around them. Like, there's a very weird conundrum there that the book very much points out, the movie very much points out. And kind of like you said, part of it could be, you know, Ellis definitely kind of expressing and working through some stuff that he has had firsthand experience with. You know, it's also of note, too, that the movie was co-written by Guinevere Turner. She's also in the movie briefly, but... But she is also outwardly gay. Like, she has been out her entire professional career. So there's also kind of things being filtered through her experience as well, too. So there's definitely, like, some interesting layers to peel back there. But I don't know, you know, I don't know that, like, the movie is explicitly making a stance on any of it per se. As much as just saying, like, here's something 
that's weird, don't you think? What are these guys really trying to say or do, or what is their motivation? Well, I think it just reinforces, because this whole movie is also all about mistaken identity and identity itself. Yes, it's all about a struggle of identity, too. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of it, is just coming to terms with who you are. Yeah, Yeah. I think it reinforces the fact that they have tried to put up such an identity to others and, and the people around them that they've lost sight of who they actually are. It's kind of fucking funny, like, when he's literally yelling at pe- and sometimes in people's faces, as I kill women. I do horrible things. I want to stab you right now and play with your fucking guts and no one pays attention to him. Yeah, everybody just rolls it off. It's like, oh, you're so funny. What a cut up. Yeah, one of the things I read was it's trying to show that this world is full of sociopaths and that maybe he's not necessarily the only American psycho in this entire world of all these people are so self-absorbed in their own way. Going back to one of the the point that V made, he was having sex with the other guy's fiance and then like he says he knows that his own own fiance is cheating on him and he doesn't care a that kind of again reinforces women are objects to them yeah but again just these guys are all like so not of this world so detached from reality that this stuff is happening and it's also again maybe just in their weird way like a status thing of they care more about their business cards than who they're fucking but they're also all like backstabbing and fucking each other's spouses and stuff it's very multi-layered throughout the entire movie but it, it always falls back on a lot of these universal tropes to the point where like the whole entire story in the background of like the investigation and, and everything all happens because of mistaken identity with between Patrick Bateman and Jared Leto's character to the point where like maybe in reality he actually did murder one of the other like businessmen in his office he didn't realize it wasn't Jared Leto's character and they all even kind of all look alike in a weird way with the types of suits and glasses and they all go to the same hairstylist and everything so he could have very well killed someone else in the office thinking it was Jared Leto's character but like no one cares about that guy enough to really look into it yeah and everyone's worried about Jared Leto because oh he's in London maybe he went away for a few days to go to London or like oh I just had dinner with him in London it's kind of sad but kind of funny like especially in a 80s way of like you know before social media and smartphones and could this have technically happened between like a group of 20 or so businessmen yuppies that all kind of look alike and all kind of have the same personality like one of them went missing would any of them care this movie posits the answer of no no one really would have cared if we kind of circle back to what we we're talking about like comparing it to fight club i actually watched a review of the book on youtube and the guy said you should read the great gatsby right after and normally you wouldn't think great gatsby an american psycho <laughs> but yeah. when he said that it was kind of like a big light went off in my head and that I actually see that there is some, you know, very small, but some similarities like Dorcia and also in the the book more Donald Trump or Donald Trump's lifestyle of the 80s and and 90s is like the American dream of Daisy from The Great Gatsby, like this thing that's always out of reach, you know, the light at the the other side of the dock. Fuck, you're right. Yeah. So even though Patrick, people would kill to have his lifestyle, no pun intended, like most people would love to be able to just not work and then eat at amazing restaurants and to have sex with beautiful partners and live in a gorgeous apartment on the Upper West Side. But there's still like another level higher. There's Dorcia, a thing he can't get into even though his dad owns like one of the biggest banks in the city. In the book, he is constantly trying to get invited to a party that Donald is hosting or going to be at and it never happens. So even for like the elite of the elite, there's still like another thing that he can't ever get to. 
to. Yeah. Who has a nicer business card. Yeah. There's always yeah someone with a nicer business card or a better Valentino suit or a, a better haircut. And it's like when you are so obsessed with the little things or like the status symbols of the world, like you'll never be happy because there's always a Dorcia that you want to go to and you can't get into. And I, I like that because even if you're not wealthy enough to be a Patrick Bateman, most people in America, like compared to the rest of the world, you know, have more material items. We tend to get, you know, oh, I need to have this type of purse or I need to, you know, drive a better car, even if it's not the cream of the crop. There's a, a keeping up with the Joneses culture in America for pretty much the entire like stratospheres of the social world. It's like I, I've had neighbors like we got a new car and then they said like, oh, well, now I have to like, why, why would you have to do that? But it's yeah. like that clearly that attitude exists. And I think Patrick is like the worst possible degree of the keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Yeah. And I, I think the hyper capitalistic society that we pretend to be or we think we are or we are actually, it kind of always has us trying to compare ourselves to what others have. Mm-hmm. It, even all the way up at the top, you can be king of the world and still just comparing yourself to the other kings of the world. But when you find out, like the thing that really is horrifying to me, and I think this movie does a great job of capturing, is everything feels so empty and lacking of soul. Yeah. Even his apartment, as nice as it is, as filled with all the newest shit as it is, it feels soulless. It feels yeah. blank. It's white. It's sterile. It's stainless yeah. steel. It's just bland. There's no color in it. Yeah. And that's what probably a lot of hyper rich people are like very just it's very bland it's very soulless I think somewhere along the top when you have either been born into that or even scrapped your way up into that by fucking people how God knows how many other people over you lose your soul and there's no creativity to it it is cliche when people say like sometimes the rich are probably empty people but like I think there is a a degree of truth to that and not to say that there are wealthy people who live fulfilling lives because absolutely you know money having more money solves a lot of problems that most of us deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, whoever came up with the bullshit money doesn't buy happiness, they can go fuck off. <laughs> yeah. That is some yeah. classist bullshit and that's all it is. Yeah, but I do think also too, like if you are so consumed by materialism, you lose your soul in the process. Yes. And I would much rather go eat at like a fucking hole in the wall joint than ever eat at one of those fucking places they're at in this movie because they all looked just like bullshit places all like yeah. like horse shit well it's just like them where they're constantly putting on this performative show to like stand out in the crowd these restaurants are all essentially doing the same thing these restaurants all have their same shtick they're all trying to outperform each other with their weird foods and stuff like that same thing with all these fashion designers they all have to have their own weird exclusive things there's a whole bit in the book about different designers using different furs from different animals so that they have very specific profiles in their catalog of stuff. There's a scene where one of the guys goes to Phoenix to meet with a client there and he comes back and is like, yeah, we ate this great restaurant and I had, you know, a smoked chicken and these vegetables and blah, blah, blah. And it was really good. And Patrick's like, so it was just chicken? And he's like, yeah, it was just smoked chicken. So there wasn't like a sauce. Was it cut into weird shapes? Was it cooked like a certain way? He's going into like all these weird micro detail things and the guy's just like, 
no, it was just food. <laughs> it was just good food. Like, I don't know what to fucking tell you. There was no peacocking to the food, you know? So yeah, it's very much the status symbol kind of thing where like I have to have the loudest, most standout things in my life and surrounding myself with so that I stand out, you know? But on this train of thought, this is kind of jumping to the very, very end of the movie where it kind of basically ends how it begins. I kind of read through the plot synopsis of the book and both the book ending and the movie ending are pretty much the same and they both end the same way that the story begins in that Bateman just is out with his colleagues once again at some exclusive place, club or, or a restaurant and they're sitting there just having the fucking most banal conversation and they're all doing their performative peacocking and there's no exit, literally. And like I was reading that that it's, it's actually a nod to a play, an existential play yeah. called No Exit from 1944 by Jean-Paul Sartre, which is just, quote me if I'm wrong on this, guys. It's been a minute since I, I read the synopsis of that. But basically, it's four people in a dinner party, and they're all like maybe sort of trying to leave, but they can't stop not one-upping each other, but kind of outperforming each other or whatever. And you find out that they're all in hell. They never leave, and there is no exit. And that's kind of like what the book and the movie kind of ends on, is yeah. there's literally like a door that says this is not an exit. He walks up to in the end of the book, and behind him at the end of the movie, saying that he's in his own personal hell now, like, and he's always going to be stuck with these banal idiots, and he himself is a banal idiot, no matter how much he wants to think he isn't. The movie ends with the confession that I made meant nothing, like the confession he, he did to the lawyer, and he never got caught. You realize that he kind of wants that notoriety even of a serial killer in getting caught, but because of the mistaken identity, because so everyone is so wrapped up in their own self-image, no one cares, yeah. and that's his hell. He's trapped in it. No one gives a fuck. I, I've read No Exit. So yeah, it's basically what you described of there's no like, you know, pitchforks and torture devices. It's just people that are engineered to be like the opposite of you and drive you crazy. But the, at the end of the day, they're not courageous enough to take the leap of opening the door and walking out of the hell they've been sentenced to because they're kind of afraid of what else is out there. I actually think if you kind of take away some of the realism of this movie, there's a chance that maybe Patrick is lit in hell like it, this could be his version of the good place it looks like it's <laughs> yeah. heaven because he has all of the like physical comforts that he could possibly want but the people around him are literally driving him crazy and uh, you know serial killers do want that you know notoriety most of the time and since he's like in a world where everyone won't acknowledge it like to the point as one of you mentioned that it has like almost an otherworldly quality about it the people aren't acting like people that when you're saying I kill women they're yeah. kind of like, and what would you like with that, sir? Like, they're not responding. And it almost feels like it could be supernatural, though I know it's not really the intention that, but it's like, they're almost like programmed to don't give him recognition. Like, we're punishing him by not recognizing who he really is. Yeah. I mean, it goes hand in hand with the absurdity of that chase scene and how all these bodies just disappear that he's killed, apparently, and stacked everywhere. And how the entire apartment that Jared Leto's character has is now suddenly vanished and gone. What you were saying with the uh, idea of the people possibly even being programmed, the realtor that he runs into when he goes to Paul Allen's apartment and discovers that it's completely painted over, it's completely empty, it's been on the market, that realtor 
you know, tricks him into revealing that he's not there to buy the apartment. And then is just very cryptic about like telling him to leave. Mm-hmm. I kind of went back and rewatched that scene a couple times. It felt like the realtor knew more than she was letting on and just the way the performance was delivered. And I think that was on purpose. I just don't think it was like someone being like. It's also very cryptic in the book, too. Mm-hmm. And that's the only scene where I really ever question the like, is this in his head? Is it not? Because literally all the other scenes where he's questioning that you can go one side or the other. But the scene in the apartment is the only moment where you're really truly having to think about what is actually happening here maybe. And you know maybe the realtor is also like completely in his head. And he is imagining this realtor woman as this weird impulse survival nature in his brain telling him to like leave and get out and don't come back here again if you know what's good for you. Does she do this in the book though? Like she does in the movie where she says this apartment does not belong to Paul Allen therefore you have to leave because he's not Paul Allen he is Patrick Bateman he has spent the entire story acting like Paul Allen or like killing Paul Allen and acting like this other guy but does the Paul Allen even exist etc cetera, etc cetera. like well when he gets there the doorman specifically says you know because he asked him like oh Paul Allen's apartment he's like oh there's no Paul Allen apartment it's this lady gotcha okay it's up for sale right now and he goes up there and it's the same apartment but it's kind of been like repainted cleaned but more and more as he's there you start to maybe kind of think did the fucked up stuff actually happen there because there's flowers all over the place and there's this overwhelming smell of roses that's trying to cover some other smell the realtor woman also sees the mask that he's holding in his hand the N95 you know mask to cover the stink and she sees that in his hand and again there's that cryptic i know what's going on here you need to leave nobody's gonna ask questions just get out of here and never come back so there's definitely like some level of weirdness that happened maybe the question is whether or not it happened to the extent that we think it did or whether or not it involved the people it did but the question of did it happen at all is very hard to parse in that one scene literally every other scene though you could side one way or the other pretty entirely well and even during the ridiculous chase scene like when he goes into that wrong building, the guy there greets him as Mr. Smith as if the guy knows exactly who he is. Yeah, and that could also be he looks like all the other guys that live in this fucking apartment building. Yeah, exactly, yeah. In the book, you do find out he's got two or three places around town. He's also got a place way off in fucking Brooklyn, I want to say. Hell's Kitchen. No, it was in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has like another apartment there. He brings guys there and murders and tortures men at that apartment and then he like murders all these women at the Paul Allen apartment and he like has a weird delineation of these are my workspaces and I keep them separate but you find out that he does have apartments in two or three different places so could be some of that weirdness it could also just be he looks like all the other people in the apartment well and then at the end of the day I don't think the movie or the book that's not what's important is like exactly reality Yeah, yeah. yeah it's still just trying to fuck with your head and make you question everything that you've been reading or everything that you've been watching either way. Oh, no, I think it's more trying to capture his own psychosis. Of He is literally hallucinating and thinking and dreaming up all these ridiculous things because like one of the more ridiculous kills in the book and the, also the most horror movie scene-esque is when he's chasing the sex worker and he's completely butt-ass naked and has the chainsaw. He's like covered in blood and like she runs room to room and sees all the dead bodies and stuff and then like he drops the chainsaw from the top and it literally like perfectly falls in a way that it like kind of almost 
cuts her in half. No one answers her screams because no one's even listening. Again, going back to the point when he, like he's screaming at other people, like I murder people and blah, blah, blah. No one pays any attention to it. I think that is all just part of the psychosis because it goes back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, And he, he's trying to do this performative art in his own head of this is what I should be like and this is what I am when who in the hell knows what in reality he actually is. He actually kills Christy with a car battery in the book. So I find that interesting that, um, Aaron, do you remember, is there a chainsaw at all in the book? Because I don't really remember. He makes a passing reference to, oh, I had a portable battery powered chainsaw that I used on somebody one Mm -hmm. time. But there's never like a moment where you actually see him use it. But I mean, there's a lot of much more fucked up stuff. Like you said, he hooks this woman up to a car battery until like literally she is fucking cooked from the inside out, exploded, and he wakes up hung over the next day and realizes, oh, shit i've left this body hooked up to a car battery all night there is another really awful scene where a rat is involved and i don't even want to talk about that scene because it's fucking gross there's just lots of really really rough stuff in the book when it comes to the violence so like as ridiculous as him running down a hallway naked covered in blood with just his fucking socks and rolex on with a chainsaw and drops a chainsaw down a stairwell on a woman that's the most tame shit that the Mm -hmm. book actually covers yeah and i don't think that one's grisly as much as it is cartoonish it's ridiculous yeah but that's kind of how everything is it's grisly to the point of being ridiculous i mean think of the most fucked up stuff you've ever heard with serial killers and that's kind of where this is but it's at that level constantly there's also way more animal violence in the book yeah way more animal violence that's very unsettling does the dog die.com yes Yes, he he does (laughs) there are lots of dogs that die lots of cats that die lots of animals that die four dogs that i counted total in this that sucks. At least the movie only has one and it's off screen. Yeah. So like you only see it stomping and you hear the noise. And the confession scene in the movie where he calls his lawyer and is like rattling off all these other things, all the other things that he mentions there happen in the book in like gotcha. way more detail mm-hmm. too. So it's it's referencing all the other moments that the book brings up. Real quick, circling back to the chainsaw death, the original point I just remembered I wanted to bring up about that was going back to his own psychosis. Because again, you see him watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre on in the background that scene happens and then like when he's in the scene with the restaurant with Reese Witherspoon's character his fiance and he breaks it off with her he's literally like drawing out on the restaurant napkin with a crayon he's drawing out the dead woman with a chainsaw halfway through her body and that again goes back to like did this actually happen or is this a creative kill you think you want you did and or you want to do yeah is this like a weird daydream kind of thing yeah the V what else were you about to say? I've actually, I've got two things about, one about the realtor and one about the difference between women in the book and in the movie. I'll start with the women thing because we just talked about Evelyn because I feel like in the the movie, Evelyn and like all of her other like upper crust women come off as kind of vapid and stupid or like they're kind of taking advantage of the fact that they don't really ever have to work and they just get to come from money and marry money and they're you know similar to Patrick kind of obsessed with jewelry and clothes and you see in that scene she like you know is waving to a friend across the room as Patrick is confessing murder and like wants to break up the relationship so she's clearly as like empty as Patrick but I noticed in the, in the book the women are almost like kowtowed into putting up with their men like the men are far more verbally yeah. and then even sometimes physically 
abusive, like not just Patrick, like his friends will talk about demeaning their wives or girlfriends or, you know, cheating on them. And like, I don't give a crap what so-and-so thinks I'm, I'm going to do what I want and she can't tell me what to do. There's far more in the book of a Stockholm syndrome of being trapped in a marriage or a relationship and not having the agency to leave where the movie makes them seem a bit more like they're too empty to know what's going on where I felt like the book was like these women are trapped. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's one scene in the movie that I think gives that away though. And it's that scene where it's him and Evelyn and he's just like, why don't you take some like Vicodin or whatever and chill the fuck out? She whispers like she's almost like looking longingly out of the cab and she's just like, I wish I just had a beautiful child. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have two beautiful children. And I think in that scene right there, that's where it shows these women do have agency. But like you said, they're just as trapped as these yuppies and these hyper-masculine men. Like you were saying, despite having this life of leisure, it's not the dream that anyone deserves really but like yeah that scene was super tragic when she delivers that line I just want two beautiful children in a normal situation if you want to have children you should, or if you choose not to have children you should never be deprived of having that choice and you know again Patrick just kind of dismisses mm -hmm. it by like take more medication and like trip balls and you'll wake up at the restaurant well so, sadly enough like that's Courtney so that's Lewis's fiance and I mean I don't know if he's having sex oh, was with it her Courtney? I'm sorry. yeah it was Courtney <laughs> you're doing the Paul Allen thing where you think everyone's the wrong yeah, person. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm mixing up. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I don't know, like, they're never explicit about, and even in the book, whether or not, like, Lewis is actually having sex with his fiance to, like, save face about his uh, homosexuality, but I'm kind of implying that since she's so willing to jump into bed with Patrick, she's not being satisfied sexually by Lewis, and I think that maybe she won't ever have the chance to have children if her fiance, you know, is just using her as a beard. So yeah. it's like she has even, like, less agency, but, you know, she's, like, so drugged out by all these medicine and like I'm sure her family is like oh just marry him he's wealthy whatever that her own desires are not important at all yeah and again I have to bring it up every single time since becoming a parent that like line delivery in that scene was a more of a gut punch to me and made Patrick especially but all of them mm -hmm. much more monsters in my eyes than prior if I hadn't had a child I don't know I just that kind of stuff is always interesting to me V I know you're a parent as well and so it, it just made that all the more tragic for the women that are in their lives. Yeah. And, and I actually like for the, the real estate agent, she's the only woman in the film that has like more agency. Like she actually scares people. Patrick, which is a hard thing to do. And she's, you know, she's older. She's has her own wealth. I actually always love that scene because like he spent the entirety of the film like terrifying women and her just simply saying, I think you should go. He's like shaking in his boots practically. Yeah. And I really like that. And also like if anyone in the world is going to have the balls to face a serial killer, it's New York realtors. They are so <laughs> yeah. intense and I totally could see you know one of these realtor kind of shark people totally not caring that there's a bunch of dead bodies in a apartment and just cleaning it out and turning it for a profit I totally see them just yeah. being like oh yeah well I'll take care of it this is too good a real estate to report this yeah. probably not the fifth time yeah. <laughs> and that's a good point though because all the women that Patrick even preys on are either all sex workers and he's luring them in with a ton of money or you know it's all the women that 
that associate themselves with his workers, his co-workers and everything. And, you know, they're all being fed medication and they're all subdued and, and accepting of this life of just marrying wealthy and never having to work. But they have to deal with these chauvinistic assholes. And so he's just kind of preying on people he knows he can manipulate and he knows he can murder. But again, the minute someone really, the minute a realtor stands up to him, he cowers, like you said. That, I think, really captures a lot of serial killers in real life because at the end of the day, we find that a lot of the serial killers in real life are fucking nerd cowards at Mm -hmm. heart and pieces of shit. And I think we can't lose sight of that even with someone like Patrick Bateman. Like, at the end of the day, he is a coward piece of shit. The movie makes no effort to make him redeemable, which I think a lesser movie would still try and make him redeemable in some way. But, like, if he is truly trapped in hell, it's a good thing that he's trapped in hell. Like, that is what he deserves. Yeah, for sure. Cool, yeah. So, uh, let's talk about the production of this movie real fast. So, you know, a lot of times when we talk about horror movies, it seems to be one way or the other, where it's either like, nothing went wrong, everything was fine, they had no problems getting this movie off the ground, and, you know, boom, there it is, no drama. Or, oh god, production hell, everything went wrong, weird, crazy production history. And this is definitely that. So, there were a couple of things that I found to be pretty interesting. Edward Pressman bought the rights to the novel back in 1992, and just look up Edward R. Pressman when you have a moment, because that guy's list of production credits are bananas, right? produced a lot of stuff, yeah. He originally offered the film to Stuart Gordon, director of Reanimator. Then it pretty quickly moved from him to Cronenberg, with Ellis actually adapting his own novel. Brad Pitt was kind of set to star initially. Dude, could you imagine a what if if Cronenberg got it? Saying, like, granted, I love there's there's Mary way Harris. more what ifs I'm about to get to in a second. Yeah, like because there's a lot of oh things could have been very different if this one movie had gone a different way. So Cronenberg hated all the like restaurant and brand stuff. Ellis was bored with the material because he had already moved on to like doing other stuff. So to come back and like have to adapt his own book into the screenplay, he was just fucking tired of it and like literally changed the ending to a musical number with Barry Manilow and like Patrick Bateman what? tap dancing <laughs> at the top of the Empire State Building. There was also a point in time where they moved past Brad Pitt and Johnny Depp was interested in it. Somewhere along the line Mary Heron got put on it around 1996. It was somewhere like where development stalled with Cronenberg. She was very passionate about I Want Christian Bale. They kind of had just a handshake agreement that he was going to be the lead. Lionsgate took over the production in 97. And at that point, they were like, yo, nobody knows Christian Bale. You know, he had been a child actor. He was in stuff like Empire of the Sun, Newsies, and Little Women. But they were like, yeah, he's just not a big enough star for this. Whatever. He's gone. We want either Edward Norton, who had just come off of Primal Fear, and that was a big deal, or they wanted DiCaprio, who had just come off of Titanic. Heron kind of argued that Leonardo DiCaprio was just way too young. Think about Titanic. Have you seen any scenes from Titanic lately? He looks like a baby, right? And he was also super expensive. He wanted $21 million, period. And they were talking about 7 to $10 million for this movie's budget. Right away, she was just like, no, that's ridiculous. Leonardo DiCaprio, who really had no idea, apparently, that Bale and Heron were involved at this this point, he kind of just threw out, oh yeah, no, here's some directors that I think will be good for it. Oliver Stone, Danny Boyle, and Scorsese, right? And the studio pursued 
Oliver Stone kicked Mary Heron to the curb. And again, Christian Bale only had a handshake agreement to begin with. So yeah, he was out. So there was this moment in time around 97 where Oliver Stone, Leonardo DiCaprio are kind of developing this. They are definitely not seeing eye to eye on it. Stone wanted to like strip all the satire out and just make it about the dark psychosis of Patrick Bateman and really dig into like the violence and all that kind of thing. At some point, Leonardo DiCaprio was just like, eh, I'm bored with this. I'm moving on. I'm going to pause right there. So to jump back to something that V brought up earlier, according to Guinevere Turner, the co-writer of the script, at some point in time, Leonardo DiCaprio was invited to a baseball game by Gloria Steinem, and they like went to a baseball game together, and Steinem was like, yo, this book is trash, it is awful, do not be in this movie, do not do that to your reputation, you have all these young teenage girl fans now from Titanic, do not fucking put them through having to watch this movie, don't do it. And so between her kind of talking him out of it, him getting tired of dealing with Oliver Stone, and then Danny Boyle also bugging him to be in the beach, he left and he went to go be in the beach. I don't even remember the fucking beach. That's one of the more inconsequential like if that never happened, okay, like the beach is fine, but nobody is really like, oh my God, that's the best movie ever. But yeah, to V's point that's really weird is Gloria Steinem then like goes on to marry Christian Bale's dad. And so she's now like his stepmom. And that's a wild detail I had no idea about. So anyway, Lionsgate then offers the lead to Ewan McGregor because he was hot off of Train Spotting and Velvet Goldmine and again, going back to Danny Boyle, Shallow Grave and Bale personally was like yo do me a solid turn this movie down i've been waiting for a year i've been turning down other roles and auditions i've been like staying in this like crazy body shape this entire time like i have been pursuing this movie forever please just say no to this and you know you mcgregor apparently was a bro and was just like cool like i'll i'll back off this movie really is a marriage of creativity in that the what ifs of the casting are pretty fun i i think i agree with you dicaprio would have been way too young at this point but bale is the perfect patrick bateman oh totally, totally. for this and mary heron's take on this source material and the way she directed this is perfect for like what's actually important in the story yeah i don't give a shit about exploring his dark psychosis that's not what's interesting and this is the perfect kind of thing where like you don't need a star because a star is just going to distract you from like what's actually going on but he he feels like a fucking movie star in this movie like this is definitely a breakout role oh well this is totally his breakout thing and there's a specific detail on that i'll mention in a second so at this point lionsgate was just like hey uh, Mary, Heron, and Christian Bale, do y'all just want to come back on this production again? And they were like, yeah, fuck it, sure, yes, we've been trying to do this this entire time. And then it pretty much right away just went straight into production because they had already done all the pre-pro and stuff. Like, it had already been set up and developed, and it was just like, cool, get us back on and done. And the only condition was just, well, we're not going to give you a $40 million budget to make it. Like, if this were with Leonardo DiCaprio because he's a star, you'll get 7 to 10, which is kind of what the original budget was going to be anyway. 
So, yeah, I mean, from there, movie goes into production, good to go. So, to your point about Bale feels like a movie star, for sure. I mean, this was obviously, like, his big breakout role. The detail is he apparently, like, at the very beginning, kind of struggled figuring the role out until he saw Tom Cruise in an interview and was like, oh, hmm, okay, I get this now. Like, the weird shark narcissism, dead eyes, weird giant smile yeah smile and acting suave but when you look at his eyes they're black eyes lifeless eyes like a doll's eyes, like a doll's eyes. <laughs> so yeah like that's the one detail that he's talked about everybody's talked about oh yeah he bases his performance off tom cruise you can totally see it, right? You know Tom Cruise had to have heard that because this movie, where it is now. What do you think Tom Cruise thinks? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, even one layer deeper, Tom Cruise is in the book. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite scene, actually, that what? they omitted. Tom Cruise lives in the same apartment building as Patrick Bateman. And there is a moment where Patrick Bateman gets into the elevator and Tom Cruise is in the elevator because he lives in the penthouse. And they have this awkward exchange where he's kind of like... He's fangirling, but badly. That's Tom Cruise. And he's like, uh, I liked you in Top Gun and Bartender. And there's that moment of pause and Tom Cruise just, you know, being Tom Cruise, can't let that go. And is like... It was Cocktail. The movie's called Cocktail. It's not Bartender. It just, like, he has to have that moment of, you're a fucking idiot, you know? And it's kind of this great moment. And he just, you know, gets off the elevator. Yeah, they're both going back to their apartments full of dead women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the more interesting parts in the novel where I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Because I've heard for years he based his performance off Tom Cruise. So that the fact that, like, from 1991 in the novel, Tom Cruise is in the novel is kind of an interesting wrinkle. And I'm sure... I'm sure it was more like a you know it's not that happenstance christian bale happened to see tom cruise on an interview show and got the idea as much as like oh this is a thing let me look at tom cruise just out of curiosity oh oh okay yeah this totally makes sense you know there's nothing going on yeah so those eyes. with all of that said i think what i find interesting is again this movie was shot in like 97 98 came out in 2000 think about other things that kind of came out around the same time okay so if they had gone with edward norton he wouldn't have been in fight club the overlap there like it just that probably wouldn't have happened right what year did fight club drop because i thought it was 97 it was 99 okay yeah so if brad pitt had been cast probably wouldn't have been in fight club if Ewan McGregor had been cast, probably wouldn't have been in Phantom Menace. And like, well, <laughs> Obi-Wan's kind of one of the only good things about those movies, right? Yeah, no dad joke Obi-Wan. <laughs> There's, you know, fucking reason why he's the only person from that whole era getting a Disney show. If they had gone with Leo, Leo wouldn't have made the beach, right? Well, I think the more really like interesting thing <laughs> is if either Norton or Pitt had not have done Fight Club, there's a lot of other like really interesting, weird what ifs in that movie's casting, and that creates a whole weird cascade effect. So like if Fight Club fundamentally did not end up being the type of movie it is and having the same cultural impact that it had and becoming this cult thing that then steered a lot of modern male behavior and being reinterpreted in kind of this weird we didn't get the fucking satire way what would that have done because yeah, i think a lot of that is owed to brad pitt's portrayal of tyler durden 
Well, it just all of it being like yeah. so cool. Like the cinematography in Fight yeah. Club is so cool. The fucking soundtrack is so cool. Like everything about Fight Club is we're trying to do this satire of aimless modern American males who have no fucking drive or ambition and just want to like push their blame and everything else onto other people and not take responsibility for the things and just all that toxic weird bullshit. And yet it's one of those things like The Matrix where it's like, what do people like about this movie? Is it all the weird like blending of Eastern philosophy and well, no, trench coats and guns. That's what people love about The Matrix, right? So let's put trench coats and guns and fucking everything. Shrek is going to be doing bullet time, <laughs> motherfucker. Like it's the same kind of thing where like people just got all the wrong takes out of that movie so like imagine if that movie had just completely not taken off it's kind of interesting like if that had happened right also if christian bale had not been cast in this movie we'd probably not have any of the nolan batman movies there's no him getting batman had nolan not seen no this, dark knight no heath ledger joker and yeah. been like oh hey like the duality of him being this outwardly flamboyant playboy billionaire guy and then having this dark brooding whatever like that's the dynamic we need for batman cool get him that would have never happened right arguably nolan's career wouldn't be where it is had he not been able to work with bale in the batman movies and in the prestige and stuff like that it's kind of a weird cascade effect of a lot of pop cinema would not be the way it is now had this movie not worked exactly the way it did so let me ask you this then a question for both of you after that at any point was jared leto considered for the patrick bayman role one of the original producers liked him more for the part and just he didn't quite have the cachet at the time it was kind of the same argument as bale where they were just kind of like mm, uh, we don't know that he's a lead he's the pretty boy but he doesn't have the name status so he was kind of always specifically that character but he is third build on this movie behind william defoe and christian bale and he's really just in two scenes yeah. he's in two scenes and he gets murdered but here's my second question for both you guys okay knowing how jared leto is and how he likes to quote unquote method act and method prepare for his roles i'm sure he probably learned a lot of it from christian bale in this movie well what is the <laughs> likelihood that he went to like work as a fucking banker down on wall street for like six <laughs> oh, months God. in preparation for like this two scene role because jared leto does dumb shit like that all the time honestly my take is he saw christian bale and what he did with this movie because christian bale is also kind of intense right we all know the stories of his body transformation stuff and like his up and down weight and muscle gains constantly but he stayed in character in and out of scenes he kept his American accent, that goofy, yuppie accent the entire time with his hard R's like the Brits like to do. I mean, he's Welsh, but same difference in this case. But he, like, kept his American accent the whole time to the point where, like, on the rap party, people were like, wait, are you doing a weird thing now? And they were like, no, that's just his actual accent. So, like, he stayed in character. He got in crazy fucking shape. He, like, had a crazy diet. Every day, he did the morning routine of Patrick Bateman yeah, from the book. Yeah, he did all the Ow. bullshit. I believe in taking care of myself in a balanced diet and a rigorous exercise routine. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I can do a thousand now. After I remove the ice pack, I use a deep pore cleanser lotion. In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser. Then a honey almond body scrub. And on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. 
Then I apply an herb mint facial mask, which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare the rest of my routine. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol, because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm followed by final moisturizing protective lotion. Yeah, so I'm sure Jared Leto honestly learned mm -hmm. from that and was like, I'm going to do the same thing. That's probably like where that started for him. I think Jared Leto learned the wrong lessons, though, from yes. that. Oh, yeah. Well, we know, too, he's also a perfect American psycho in the sense that he's literally fucking got a cult right now. You know, yeah, he's leading a cult. It's funny how you mentioned at the rap party, like they weren't even sure like what his real accent was. And I knew about this prior to watching American Psycho, but for the longest time, because of the Batman movies and the prestige, does he have an accent, the prestige? I don't think he does, right? Everybody kind of has a pseudo accent in that movie. Yeah. But like, I just assumed he was American and he- Well, lots of people have, yeah. I didn't find out until years later that he's not. Yeah. Because like, he's a good Bruce Wayne and then, then he's the yuppie in this role. Yeah, there's lots of actors and actresses like that where you don't always realize, oh wait, you're actually from somewhere else because I only ever see you with this type of accent or whatever. Yeah, that happens. I think that happens to Tom Holland a lot now, too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like fucking Oscar winner Reese Witherspoon, she's in three scenes. Chloe Savini, Oscar nominee, has a handful of scenes. Willem Dafoe, Oscar nominee, has like two scenes, right? There's a lot of people in this. Samantha Mathis, Josh Lucas. This is a weird Sweet Home Alabama prequel, right? <laughs> Josh Lucas and Reese Witherspoon. Justin Theroux, who 17 years years later is in a fucking Star Wars movie and has co-written a Marvel movie, right? On top of being in a David Lynch movie that you and I are both fans of and being on Six Feet Under and just tons of stuff, tons and tons of stuff. And so it's wild looking back and he's playing a douchebag in this. And most importantly, he was in Charlie's Angels full throttle. That is the highlight of his oh, career yeah. right there. That was the highlight <laughs> of his career. So yeah, this cast is pretty nuts. It's a lot of young, hot people right as they were all kind of breaking or right when they were like in weird places like Reese Witherspoon had been around for a while but this was like in a weird period where she was doing shit like election and freeway like all these weird edgy roles that she was trying to kind of get out of her like I'm a young poppy child star kind of thing and try to take on some more like weird adult shit so yeah like the cast of this is nuts Christian Bale, like, hands down, gives an amazing performance that is genuinely upsetting, it's funny, it's scary, just across the board, a great performance, top to bottom. Something we didn't touch on, I really enjoyed this dynamic, because it kind of goes to show you how much full of shit Patrick Bateman really is, but also just a little bit of the tragedy of people who are relatively normal being caught in, like, the madness of this yuppie culture. His secretary, who obviously has a thing, like a legitimate thing for him. Like, yeah. it seems like she's genuinely has a crush on him, not for his money or anything like that. To the point where it all accumulates the two scenes where the one where she actually is meeting him at his apartment for what she thinks is a date. And he holds the nail gun to the back of her head and he, he doesn't do it. And he's almost trying to do his performance shit of like, have you ever heard of Ted Bundy? And she's like, no, who's Ted Bundy? And he's disappointed by that. And yeah. then like kind of kills the entire vibe. But then he comes to realize this is truly someone 
who who I can't punish in a weird way. But then it also ends with a scene that I think is a scene that actually is happening in reality of where she goes through his planner at the end and sees all the drawings of butchered women and dead bodies. And their dynamic is really one of the top moments of this movie to me. Her character is arguably the most tragic in a weird way, but also like the most fascinating to me. Everyone else is kind of just caught up in this personal hell of Patrick Raymond's even yeah. where Detective Kimball himself is just like, oh, no, no, like you were at that dinner party too. Like you're totally exonerated. Nothing wrong with you. Whereas she is the only one who really seems like she knows that something horrifying is happening. What actually comes of it, we don't know. We don't see. Yeah. And there's a scene in the book too where it's the two of them talking and that's the only moment where he kind of actually has any level of self-awareness and a breakthrough moment where like he kind of realizes i'm a fucked up person there's way more going on to life he has this actual human moment with her where they're talking about what do you actually want out of life what are you doing and he has this kind of moment of clarity and humanity and then it just cuts right to like oh yeah and then we were like in aspen for a weekend then you know i just went right back to doing what i was doing and it's kind of this tragic moment in the book in the same way where that's the one moment where like you see some humanity come out and then it just goes right back to like hollow shell you know fucking predator because you mentioned chloe savini being in part of the cast and besides uh obviously christian bale's performance but like if we're talking about characters who appear in just a handful of scenes she stood out the most to me out of all the side characters yeah she's somebody that i've always liked whenever she pops up and stuff and i wish she were kind of more forward in the industry right now as well because she's had a really interesting career all said and done some other people that like kind of stand out to me andres shakula did the cinematography and you know it's very interesting looking at the early tarantino stuff that he did like pulp fiction and this because they kind of have this very similar look by the way, the look of this movie, I had to rent this movie on YouTube um, and I rented like HD, you know, the most recent cut of this movie. And I'm glad you brought up the Pulp Fiction thing because it still felt like it was purposely dated. The camera filter itself like made it feel Pulp Fiction-esque and almost like, it oh, feels this early is, 90s. Yeah, yeah, like early 90s, late 80s. What cuts did you guys watch? I um, did the one that's not the extended cut to so like the original release, I believe, because I clicked the wrong one when I was watching it. I wanted to watch the extended cut, but by the time I realized, I was like, I'm just going to keep watching it. I got the new 4K Steelbook that just came out recently, and when I popped it in, it just defaulted to the uncut version, so I don't know if that's the only version on that disc or if there was a way to switch it, but I watched the uncut one. Gotcha. But yeah, it, John Cale, like I mentioned a second ago, did the score, and I mean, that's it's not like that's the only time that he's done a score for a movie. He's done several other things. He'd done the score for Mary Heron's previous movie, I Shot Andy Warhol, but that's still just like an interesting detail of, oh, the dude from Velvet Underground did the music for this. Okay, cool. And that kind of gets to the last bit of the conversation, I guess. Soundtrack in this is fucking wild. And that's one of the things that I love about the movie, but I can't stand about the movie because it's the corniest fucking 80s dad rock, but it fits the movie so fucking well. It's just the weird Patrick Bateman. Of course, he would be like obsessed with Huey Lewis in the news, right? Of course, he would be 
really obsessed with like Whitney Houston, but specifically her like third album. Phil Collins. He's obsessed with Phil Collins, but specifically Genesis and their like second album. There's just weird shit like that. It cracks me up, just his obsession with music. And it goes back to the hyper detail fixation that serial killers tend to have on those things. And I love that nobody gives a shit. <laughs> None of the other characters ever give a shit when he starts talking about it you know except the detective the detective is the only one who's just like hey check out this new album by huey lewis in the news yeah and he's got to downplay it and he's got to downplay it and he can't talk about it because you could tell he gets kind of excited and then like oh fuck <laughs> in that moment yeah one guy he could actually talk music with is the one person he's trying to fool and like he doesn't want to give himself away um but when did you guys first watch this movie when, when was the first time you ever saw oh it? Psh, early high school just maybe a year or two after it came out not until like maybe five ish years ago so like i was either 24 or 25 a part of it i am a bit younger than you guys so i was eight when this came out so definitely would not be able to watch that it also had yeah. like this <laughs> reputation of being this like absolute horrific thing i think because the book has more of a reputation yeah so i remember when it came out like my friends at school were just like that's just essentially like torture porn like it's just this absolute horrifying they were talking about the way people talk about hostile people were acting like it was this big blood fest when it's really not i mean it's still upsetting but it's nowhere near yeah. this like i mean i guess to eight nine ten year olds it would be upsetting but it seemed like it had this big reputation and then when i watched it i mean it's yeah it's upsetting but it's not like oh my god that's the most messed up thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's not like an exploitative cannibal movie. <laughs> yeah, 100% it's the book's reputation that made the movie feel that way by proxy. Because the book is absolutely fucking horrific, and the movie is, like V said, it's pretty tame. Like, even the uncut version's still pretty tame. So my experience with this movie is different than both y'all's, and my experience is probably shared with a lot of people who are probably even younger than we are, but I'm going to show like my millennial colors here. This movie really didn't jump into the forefront of my brain until the memification of the scene where he murders Jared Leto <laughs> and he talks about yeah. Huey Lewis in the news okay. and he plays, what is it, Hip yeah. to be Square by Huey yeah. Lewis and then murders Jared Leto with the axe. So I'd known about this movie in passing, just Aaron, I know I uh, brought this up on our show a few times, but Sean Mars, he was a past guest on our Tremors episode, go check that out but he's my best friend and we used to go to blockbuster every summer almost every single day because he lived right around the corner we had this pay 60 dollars, and for three months you could get any two movies you want and you could turn it back in anytime you want for two other movies so we just rented movies a lot we'd frequent the horror section from time to time and i saw american psycho in the horror section all the time but i just never thought anything of it and then it really wasn't until like you know college or maybe even a little after college when that scene specifically became such a big meme that I actually started paying attention to the movie because when you actually like, okay, so what is this from? Oh, it's from American Psycho. Well, what is American Psycho all about? Oh, it's having a big cult following and revisionist kind of review of it. And there's a lot of interesting things this movie actually says. So I think it's interesting that there are the three viewpoints of all of us. There's the viewpoint of Aaron, who I know you just probably saw it within a year because you like have always been a, like a movie gore hound. V, you knew it more through the reputation of the book. And then there's people like me who know it as a meme so <laughs> it's just kind of interesting how this movie has developed in popularity from yeah. both something as interesting as like what well, the things it's trying to tackle and say and how that's aged versus an internet phenomena yeah 
Totally. To that point of memification and dealing with the music and everything, I think my favorite weird bullshit spinoff thing that resulted from this movie is the funnier die sketch that's actually fucking old dude from Huey Lewis. Isn't he actually Huey Lewis? Is his name actually Huey <laughs> Lewis or is it? Yeah, is it like a Jethro Tull thing? <laughs> his stage name is Huey Lewis. Okay, his real yeah. name is Hugh Craig the Third. Okay, so yeah, to my point, Hugh Craig as Huey Lewis is doing the scene in the apartment with the raincoat and the axe with fucking Weird Al Yankovic. You like American Psycho? Although originally polarizing to audiences and critics alike, it developed a much-deserved cult following when released on digital video disc or DVD. There it found a second life and really came into its own commercially and artistically. The movie works both as a grim examination of male vanity while also maintaining real genre thrills, justifying these tonal shifts by placing the audience inside the head of the duplicious lead character. Christian Bale's dynamite performance gives it a big boost. Hey. Yes, Al? Why are there newspapers all over the place? Is that like a Huey Lewis on the news joke or something? <laughs> no, Al. Hey, is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. Finally, he kills him with the axe and is just like, try to parody my songs now, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of passing stuff all the time in Blockbuster, I also passed American Psycho 2 with Mila. No, it's bad. Mila. It's so bad. Don't watch it. I, I have not watched it. I've heard it's terrible. I considered rewatching it before we recorded, and I'm so glad that I just ran out of time. <laughs> Because I watched that movie years and years ago, well after like it came out, it crashed and burned, it had an awful reputation, kind of like Prom Night 2 that you mentioned earlier. It was not originally supposed to be an American Psycho sequel. Mm -hmm. It was like a, its own weird thing, and they just wrote in these weird kind of loose connections to it, and then they added in this voiceover with Mila Kunis talking about Patrick Bateman and stuff, and so they just turned it into a sequel. But it has Mila Kunis, and then William Shatner is her professor. How could this be bad? Boy, oh boy, is that movie one of the worst things I've ever seen. It's bad. It's bad. So yeah, I'm, I'm very glad I didn't even have to expose myself to that. Both of you have seen it. Yeah, I, it was a while ago, and I I really like Mila Kunis, so it's a real, real sad day when I, it wasn't. I didn't know, it's like reputation, I, I wasn't aware of it. I knew it was not going to be as good because no one talks about it. I just was like, oh, what's this? Maybe this will be at least mildly entertaining. I was like, oh, this is this is so awful. This is It's bad. Yeah. Well, and the kind of funny thing is from like my childhood, teenage years, I remember the cover to American Sex to more than I remember the cover to American Psycho. And not because, you know, it's a girl, but it's just like that for some reason was featured more at my local blockbuster than American Psycho, which seems like a big fucking crime. <laughs> it's probably because they had 10 boxes of it stacked up because it wasn't going anywhere. True. So you just saw that constantly. That was one that I remember seeing like every used video store, every place where you would go where there were just like VHSs and DVDs stacked up. They're just always a gajillion copies of that yeah so yeah that sequel is awful there have been talks over the years of trying to do a modern remake of it. There were talks for a while of doing like an actual TV show on a streaming network for a while. But then, of course, with both, it was like, well, A, why? B, do you update it to modern day with an older Patrick Bateman? Do you just change to a different person in a different timeline? Just all this back and forth of like, what do you do? Because you can go in any direction. But again, the question is, why? 
you know, I think Brett Easton Ellis has been asked about doing a sequel, and from what I understand, he has been back and forth adamantly about, no, I would never fucking do that, are you kidding me, that's bullshit, I'm never gonna write a sequel to this, and then there's times where, like, you'll catch him on his show, and he'll be like, uh, I thought about it, whatever, who knows, you know, it's the kind of thing where there's all kinds of ways that you could sequelize it, it's still shocking that there have not been actual remakes or serious sequels to it since then. I'm genuinely curious to see what long-term legacy of this movie looks like, especially now that, like we said, you know, there's been a lot of cult embrace of the movie. There has certainly been a much bigger female response to the movie in hindsight. So I'm I'm curious to see, like, long-term where this movie kind of goes with its reputation, especially since, like, there's that weird kind of side thing of there's a lot of dude bro Wall Street guys who are like, no, I fucking love this movie. I want to be like Patrick Bateman. And like we joked about earlier, like you're taking the wrong lessons from this movie, you know? So there's people who embrace it that way. And then there's people who embrace it for the fact that it is satire against all that. You could line it up against like the whole MAGA movement and Trumpism and all that, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That seems like easy pickings, but there's so much relevancy there for sure that, you know, you could talk about that all day long. So yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see kind of how the movie continues to evolve in its reputation but it's one where you know me personally especially after like finally getting through the book that is quite repetitive you know the book definitely kind of repeats so many of the same beats just kind of over and over with a little variation but I was very surprised listening to the audiobook and then re-watching the movie afterward the movie is a pretty good cliff notes condensation of the entire book and there's a lot of moments where they literally pull some of the same exact dialogue and stuff in ways that worked well. So, you know, I think Heron and Guinevere Turner did a great job of actually adapting the source material in a way that works for a movie because I struggled with the book, you know, so I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I can at least go back to this movie because um, I don't think I'll ever revisit the book again. So yeah, I think that's all I've got. What are y'all's final thoughts? I think just to touch on the idea of it being like redone in the modern time, I actually think that it would be good if they made Patrick or a Patrick-esque character a tech CEO instead because, like, honestly, Wall Street's had its day a bit. Most people, younger people, are wanting to be in the tech world more than in the traditional, like, banking institutions. And that's, like, what's cool that even a lot of wealthy people, regardless of what their job is, are kind of modeling themselves after the, like, millionaire next door look that's popular in Silicon Valley with the Allbirds and the Apple watch and kind of being more like hip to the generation z and using tiktok and social media is like more cool versus wearing a pinstripe suit and going to work at a nine to five and then eating at a fancy italian restaurant like that doesn't seem what is cool nowadays and that yeah that i could see there being some guy who's just obsessed with being cool in silicon valley and i would i would like to see that versus just oh we're gonna dust off this book and just make it 2022 and call it a day yeah yeah even even with elon musk being like where he is and social relevancy and all that yeah i mean kind of what happened is all those wall street bros and bankers are still there they just got old and now their kids are the ones who like you said are moving into the tech side of Mm -hmm. things so yeah i mean you could easily do a generational thing there and certainly immediately as soon as you said tech people obviously like zuckerberg comes Mm -hmm. to mind because he is a 
about as fucking weird and creepy as Solus as they come, and knowing a lot of the fucked up stuff he did, there's there. He also has shark eyes. Yeah, yep. he has the shark eyes. But I also immediately thought of Oscar Isaac from Ex Machina. It's very much the same yes. kind of thing. He's super into his fitness and diet thing. Definitely has the same like weird, creepy hangups with women and the way that he sees women as objects. Like It's a lot of the same Patrick Bateman stuff in that character from that movie. Yeah. My two final thoughts are, I'm guessing Patrick Bateman, the name Bateman is a play on Norman Bates. I don't know for sure, but I could definitely see that. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And then the last thing I wanted to say is it's interesting how with the book, um, there's constant like allusions to Trump and where's Trump? I want to like go to the party that Trump's at. I think there is a Trump reference in the movie, but it's in passing. But the thing that I caught was at the end, the scene where it might be hell, question mark. They're arguing whether or not Ronald Reagan is a harmless man or a hidden psychopath. And I think that movie, the movie is basically making the point is he's a fucking psychopath like Patrick Bateman, he's this unassuming like nerdy or like harmless guy, but like when you look by the eyes there's nothing there, but I think that is a direct beat you over the head critique of the horrors of unchecked capitalism. Yeah. So, does the book end with that, the Ronald Reagan debate? Yes. Yes, and then it kind of ends very similar to how the movie ends. It's just them like all griping about where to go next, and then it kind of goes into the like no exit ending. It's very very similar, yeah. Well, I think that's it. Thank you once again, V, for coming on to talk this movie. Your book, Dead Ringer, you can once again pre-order it at Black Rose Writing. And you said it's on Amazon and possibly Barnes & Noble. Yeah, Barnes & Noble's after the release date in April. In April. And what's the release date again? April? Uh, April 7th. They can also find your books at your Twitter account at Mm -hmm. T on your link tree there and also at Black Rose Writing and Mm -hmm. on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. So please go support her and her writing. Uh, just now, while we were wrapping up, I pre-ordered your book off Black Rose Writing. Thank you. I will be sure to read it once that comes in. And we'll have to get you back on for something else. Maybe we can go something more Jennifer's body or not having to deal with <laughs> serial killers. <laughs> I don't mind serial killers. But yeah, I'm, I'm open to, to anything. And thanks for having me. It's been super fun. Yeah, yeah. this was great. So once again, we are Watch If Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, The Coward, and my movie monster boy co-host, Aaron. You can find us at all of the podcatchers these days, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Podchaser, Good Pods. Please continue to rate and review us and subscribe to us or follow us. Yes, please. Um, especially on Apple and Podchaser and Good Pods, because that seems to be where a lot of stuff is really getting us to chart, which is incredible. Thank you once again. Shout out to your little brother. Jesse Mansfield for the bumps at the beginning and the end of each episode. You can find his stuff at Bandcamp, at Party Gator, Opossums, Big Clown, whatever million projects he's on. <laughs> Speaking of music, you can check out our Spotify music playlist. It's linked at the top of our Twitter and our Facebook accounts. And you can find us at Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare. So, yeah, I think that's all I got. Got anything else, Aaron? There is an idea of a Sally. Some kind of abstraction, but there is no real her, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, she is simply not there. She has to return some videotapes? <laughs> hey, she, Sally's back in the new Texas Chainsaw, y'all. Oh, shit. We'll see how that goes. Well, yeah, that's it. Cool. Gotta go return those videotapes and feed a cat to a automatic teller. Bye.